it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, Wondrium, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Happy Halloween. Halloween is here, your soul to take, with tonight's tales to keep you awake. He looks like his brother, but something's not right. His brother's at camp for several more nights. It's stalking you. It hides the corn. It cannot be seen, but the stench is a warning. It wants you to leave, and it's filled with dark hate. Was tracking it down your final mistake? A goblin, a genie, a demon appear. They challenge your faith and feed on your fear. Just be glad that you were not present for these five astonishing legends. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It was so easy to be wise in the explanation of an experience one has not personally witnessed. Wendigo by Algernon Henry Blackwood from his novella, The Lost Valley and Other Stories, published 1910. Join us tonight for the final episode of our 2022 Halloween special series. And we're back. That we are, folks. We hope you've enjoyed these three weeks of scary stories in a row. We're dark next week, but we'll be doing a new junk drawer show on Patreon, and we'll be back the week after that with a brand new show in our more traditional vein. We'd like to remind everyone that Tess is wrapping up Blog Astonishing October, where she's been posting a new blog post every day for the entire month. So if you missed those, get on over there and check them out. They are fantastic, and they don't spoil. They're good well past November. That is correct. And also, if you're a fan of the Midnight Library, a new season has just started, so look for that wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and if we've managed to pull off releasing this on October 29th, you can also (laughs) find us live tonight 
again, if we posted this in time, mm. during the nine o'clock hour on Jim Harold's YouTube channel for his virtual Halloween party. And if it's already run or you're listening to this after October 29th, you can go back and stream the replay. Okay, folks, we've got a really great show tonight, so let's not waste another minute of whatever life you have left. All right, think of tonight's show as a five-course meal of Astonishing Legends. <laughs> These are some of our favorite stories that came in. Well, I hope people noticed, uh, maybe not, but we tried to curate the experience so that we start off with one type of story or one type of experience because there are lots of patterns to this. And then we try to ramp it up, and tonight... These aren't the longest anecdotes. We chose some that we could uh, jam-pack more into a part three, but I will say these are some of the most disturbing, each in their own way. Folks, we got a lot of great stories from a lot of you, so you may yeah. still be hearing from us in the coming months. If, yeah. if you didn't hear your story on the show, obviously you would have heard from us by now. So the point is we want to record a lot more of them and right. possibly broadcast them sometime next year, either on our YouTube channel or the main show or Patreon or somewhere. So keep an eye on those inboxes because you might be hearing from us. Yes, because we both feel that a lot of these stories need to be told. So we're going to do that here and there in the future. But tonight, we're going to ramp into darkness here. All five of these are encounters, technically. And here's what's interesting, folks. Mm. There's some very common ground, even within this episode, with these first two. And then there's common ground with legends you've heard before as well with the other ones. Yeah. This first one comes to us from listener Mallory Kennington, who actually lives just over an hour away from me uh, here in North Carolina. So, uh, Sarah, without further ado, please roll the goblin. All right, folks, we'd like to welcome Mallory to the show. Mallory sent in a great story for us for this year's Halloween story extravaganza that we're doing. And uh, we wanted to hear her tell it herself. But uh, first, Mallory, why don't you say hello to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself to the extent that you're comfortable. Hi, guys. Um, so my name is Mallory. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I am a software developer. And I think that's kind of relevant because we're all typically pretty skeptical haven't had a lot of paranormal experiences, I would say. Um, I'm agnostic. I definitely require a lot of proof for anything. So you would describe yourself as somewhat skeptical? Yeah, for sure. Um, I went to Catholic school, and I think that's, <laughs> from a young age, prove it. <laughs> when you're ready, why don't you tell us uh, your story? We'd love to hear it. This was about uh, 2007. I had moved to South Florida at the time I lived in Coral Springs. And I was, let's see, I was working in a call center. So I was doing like IT support for gateway computers. Mm, boring. <laughs> <laughs> so I had this great apartment. It was the first time I've ever lived completely alone. <sighs> It wasn't like, oh, it was just totally weird stuff happening all the time, but it was, there was a lot of strange occurrences and it was all in the category that you could kind of dismiss like, oh, I must have just put that there or I must have just lost this and, you know, I'm imagining this or that or, you know, the weird sounds outside or just cats, just neighborhood cats or something. On the night that this happened, I remember I was in bed with my boyfriend at the time, and I woke up for no reason. I just, you kind of get that, like, hair prickling on the back of your neck sensation, or like somebody is watching you, or somebody is there. So I immediately, when I woke up, felt like someone was standing in the corner of the room, someone or something. 
And, you know, at the wall that the foot of the bed was facing, I had the dresser, and then right next to that was the corner of the room. So it was dark, and I could kind of make out like a robed figure in the corner. I mean, I knew as soon as I woke up, like, right where to look, everything, and I just had something instinctual telling me, don't actually look at it. So I'm kind of squinting my eyes just enough and moving just a little, so it kind of seems like I'm still asleep. So I see this thing, and, you know, of course, I know what, like, sleep paralysis is. I can think of, oh, you're just waking up and seeing a weird shadow, who knows what. So I kind of look at it for a minute, long enough to say, all right, this is really, like, something's going on. This whole time, something is telling me, just pretend like you're asleep. So I kind of slowly roll over to face the other side of the bed, And I think I fell asleep for a little while. And I woke up again with like an even stronger feeling like, oh my gosh, something or someone is in the room. And this is the only time in my life I've ever said something had a malevolent presence. There's all kinds of stuff in novels you read and things where somebody's like, oh, those, you could see it in their eyes or you could feel it in the room. Like, no, other than basic body language and social cues that you can obviously tell when somebody's like really angry. I've never gotten any of that. So I'm rolled over at this point and I kind of squint my eyes open again and it is like right in my face its nose is like an inch from my nose. And that's when I could really see details and stuff. When I described it to my friend, I said it looked like evil Yoda. (laughs) It was like a Yoda Cheshire Cat cross. So picture like Yoda's, you know, head shape with the ears, but um, the ears were definitely like a little bit further up on the head, not totally on the side between top and middle of the head. They were a little longer and pointier, and it had this big Cheshire Cat smile, and it was smiling, and its eyes were huge, and it was insanely creepy. Pointy teeth, the caricature of a horror movie monster. It had orangish um, reptilian skin, a little scaly, and just these big, huge, gold, luminous eyes, and that's what I remember the most. The eyes were just, like, boring into you. Giant flashlights just shining gold. I felt like it was in my face because it was trying to get me to wake up, and I just felt like if I woke up, that's when it would do whatever it wanted to do. I felt like it wanted to hurt me, like I was going to get thrown across the room, poltergeist-style, beat up, or who knows what. And my boyfriend at the time slept through all of this. I never told him anything about it. He still doesn't know anything about it to this day. I obviously knew what sleep paralysis was, and I kind of thought to myself, maybe I've never experienced it before or since then, but I thought maybe it's just a sleep paralysis type thing. So I was like, okay, I don't want this thing in my face. I'm gonna slowly roll back over. Obviously not sleep paralysis, and I'm freaking out more at this point, and I'm wondering, I'm like, can it tell? My heart is pounding, and I'm like breathing heavy. Do I have to like actually wake up and acknowledge it for anything to happen? Like, what's going on? I just stayed very still, tried to calm down, essentially went back to sleep, and I never 
saw that thing again, but definitely several weird experiences uh, happened in that apartment. As this scene unfolds, what first happens is that you get a sense or presence of something being in the room, human or whatnot, and that wakes you up into this yeah. kind of alpha state of sleep where you're you're starting to wake up. You're you're conscious and you you know you're awake, but you're not frozen. You can move. Mm-hmm. And as you crack your eyes open, as you peel your eyes open a little bit, you see this figure. And could you describe how it first appeared to you? Because in your email you said you got the sense that it was a humanoid shape, maybe about five ten in height, so fairly fairly tall, right? Yeah. Not what you expect something to be like, you know, 6'10", towering over you, big and bulky or anything like that. (laughs) Like, if it was a person, and I boxed at the time, so if it was somebody that I was, like, sparring with, I would have been like, oh, yeah, no problem, not a big deal. It wasn't, (laughs) you know, huge and muscular. So, uh, yeah, that's what woke me up was that, just that feeling. I didn't have to pee. I didn't hear a strange noise or anything like that. It was just that feeling. And I mean, I came to consciousness with that feeling of dread already, like, what's going on? I'm going to be imminently attacked. Right. And then I kind of looked over. It was. It had a robe. It didn't have its hood up, and I already saw, like, the outline of the ears. And that's why I was like, all right, I'm still in a dream. When you described the eyes, were they, uh, like, compound eyes, like insect-like, or was it a single iris pupil? I mean... It was cat-like. Pupil was cat-like. Didn't dilate or anything, didn't move around, just stared right at me. And See, at this point, it's fully standing. It's further away, so you can see more of it. And at this point, you notice that it is wearing a robe. It's got an outfit on. It's not a naked lizard. Yeah. Could you describe the outfit a little bit, like something you might see in a, uh, I guess, in Star Wars, uh, something uh, (laughs) Jedi-like? Think like, you know... Old style monk's robes that are brown that have the rope belt. Didn't have a cowly neck. It was black. It didn't have like wide sleeves or anything, just plain sleeves. Had like a hood on the back that kind of came down to a point. It didn't have the hood up. And that was the one detail I didn't see, but I just kind of intuitively knew so much about this thing. Like, I knew what the texture of the cloth would feel like if I touched it. I knew what the skin would be like. Like, it wasn't slimy. It was more like Mm -hmm. snake skin, but a little rougher. Did you hear uh, physical effects in the environment from its movement? No, and that's why I thought I might have fallen asleep during the time that it moved, because I didn't hear anything. And when I first saw it, It didn't move at all, but at the time, if it had, you know, shifted or taken a step to the left, even if I had my eyes closed, I would have perceived it. Like, that's, it it was like a complete physical presence. But whenever it came over to the side of the bed, I had no idea. The only thing I knew was, like, that feeling of, like, dread and something's going to hurt me. Again, that made me open my eyes again. When it was standing further away, you noticed that definitely this thing was more reptilian than mammal-like. Yeah. And I didn't see it move at all, so I have no idea how it moved. It's like those memes with the cat, right? You look at it, it's far away, you you look away or hide yourself behind the corner and come back and it's closer, and then you look away and come back and it's right on you. you but you never see it moving. Yeah, the weeping angels for the Doctor Who fans. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> but this thing had yellow-orange reptilian skin. Like you said, it you, you got the sense that uh, it would be just dry, snake-like skin. Yeah, exactly. 
it was less like snake scales and more like, you know how you see dragon skin in mm-hmm. the fantasy shows and mm-hmm. things where it's like a scale that's surrounded by like a little bit of skin and it's all these kind of different shapes mm-hmm. and sizes of scales instead of like the overlapping kind of snake scales. Like you might see on a on an alligator bag. Yeah. Now, the next thing, though, and this is what got me, is that as you got this sense and you think, all right, maybe this is a bit of sleep paralysis, it's a hypnopompic episode here in that uh, maybe you're dreaming this and you slowly turn over, but you get the sense that maybe you should check on this again, just in case it's not a dream and you, you roll over. Now, this thing is inches away from your face. Its face is right in your face. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it. That's what it was trying to do to get me to wake up. It was almost like you hear about, oh, there's like ghosts and demons, but they have rules and they can't just like do this or that. And it was almost like, well, it can't touch me until I acknowledge it, but it can try to wake me up in like any other way it sees fit. And it seemed like such a physical body. I'm amazed I never heard it or saw it move. It didn't make any noises whatsoever. I couldn't hear it breathe. I couldn't feel any kind of, you know, wind or anything on my face as it was really close to my face. Did you smell anything like horrid breath or like no, you would expect? not at all. Nothing. Nothing. Okay. I felt like if I I had reached out and touched it. I would have mm-hmm. been able to, say, wrap my hand around its arm. Obviously, I didn't do that. But apart from just a feeling of being physically there and not appearing as any kind of apparition, appearing completely solid, um, there was nothing else to it. No sound, smell, taste, anything. Did you see any of its appendages? Like you said, did it, did it reach out or you said it had arms uh, that was, and it was more bipedal? Long-ish arms, like not kind of dragging the ground, but a little longer proportionally. Mm. Definitely like the typically, you know, monster you would expect. I mean, it's like somebody said monster Mm -hmm. in a creative writing prompt and gave you like a couple of little details in your brain, exactly how you would expect your brain to fill in the rest. Long fingers with like claws and knobby joints. Mm. Well, did it try to grab you or touch you in any way? No, it never, never tried to touch me. And like I said, I mean, I've got, I got a lot of things, a lot of intuitive information, which is, again, something I've never really experienced. Of. Mm. It's not allowed to touch me. It can't touch me until I wake up. It, I, I just can't open my eyes all the way. Or that's when the, something will happen. You had mentioned that you were, had just discovered the show and you're working your way through the back catalog. So I don't know if you've gotten to something that we've mentioned on the show before. We call it paranormal apathy. Because what you indicated when you first sensed it was that you just tried to go back to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, if someone came to you and said, hey, what would you do if you woke up and there was a strange humanoid-type figure in your bedroom, would your first thought be, you know what, that's fine, I'm going to go back to sleep? Like, why do you think you did that? That's what they tell you to do if you have sleep paralysis. And I didn't know much about it. I knew the basics and I knew friends here and there telling me like, oh, I've had an episode of sleep paralysis. You just go back to sleep, even though it seems completely unnatural. That's what they tell you to do. (laughs) That's the only thing that feels safe. It feels like if I act like I'm awake at all, you know, 
how long did this whole experience last, do you think? I mean, you might not have known because you're closing your eyes and coming in and out and everything, but did it feel like just a couple of minutes or a half hour or what did it feel like in terms of time? It felt like it was probably over the course of like a couple hours, maybe. I mean, it was like a few minutes because I, when I first woke up and I saw it, I was kind of freaking out a little bit. But it wasn't quite like super scary yet. It wasn't just like, all right, I'm imminently about to like get beaten here. I was just like, all right, well, I'm probably just seeing things. I'm going to, I don't want to be facing it anymore. So I'm just going to roll over. I definitely got the sense that I fell back asleep for a while once I kind of calmed down, which obviously probably took a while. And um, then once it was in my face and I rolled back over, it definitely took me a very long time to get back to sleep. I just kind of tried to ignore it. In your email, you said you've only told this story to one other person. What relationship do they have with you, and why have you only told one other person? So I told um, my best friend, and I waited several years. I mean, I think I only told him for the first time maybe three or four years ago, and this was, you know, in the early 2000s. He had spent a lot of time with me in that apartment. We lived really close together. He was always coming over to hang out, or I was going over to his house to hang out. And we worked overnight, and I would sleep during the day, and sometimes I would, like, wake up, and he would just be there. He'd be watching TV, have a drink, and I'd be like, oh, hey, you know, whatever. He experienced a lot of weird stuff in that apartment, too, with me. That's not natural kind of stuff that he could corroborate. And we were kind of just talking about it one day. And I'm like, I've had this thing I've kind of wanted to tell you. I didn't want you to think I was insane. But he's also been really interested in the occult forever and has done a lot of research. So I knew that he was kind of on the same wavelength as me and I wouldn't be judged. He actually had an idea of what um, he thought it might be, which was interesting. He... um Due to his research, he's like, I don't think this is like a spirit apparition kind of thing. It sounds like the folklore descriptions of a goblin in a lot of different cultures. Um, so, of course, after that, I, I looked up and I was like, yeah, that's pretty much exactly what it looked like. A little different. Like you see a lot of goblin pictures of this like knobby nose. Had like a pretty small, almost humanoid nose. Yeah. Slight differences like that. And um, in doing research, I found that they're pretty much like the opposite of, of fairies. Like they mm -hmm. are actually supposedly physically tangible earthly creatures. And uh, instead of, you know, these stories where they kind of help people and do cute stuff like fairies, they get sent as like henchmen a lot in a lot of these stories. Mm. And they get sent to uh, retaliate against somebody that has, like, no regard for nature or the environment. Mm. All the stories are them harming women, typically when, like, no men are around, which I thought, so that was one thing I thought was odd. Other than, like, having one or two nights of going crazy and reading as many folklore and legends as I could, um, I was like, all right, we're not going to look at that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think it appeared to you in that bedroom? Do you think it's the the apartment itself? Do you think it was you personally? Why do you think this happened? I don't think it had a purpose. I think it was kind of like 
just kind of wandering by and in discussing it with my friend again, he's been like, you know, not everybody can see stuff. A lot of stuff's just excited when you can see it Mm, and it wants to mess with you. And if that's what it does on the regular anyways, just beat people up for funsies, then maybe you were just in the right place at the right time. That's my best guess, really. You said that you were agnostic at the outset of our conversation Mm-hmm. How has this affected your belief system before and after? Did it change you internally or or not so much? Not really. I mean, I've already always been open to other things potentially existing. My philosophy is, I guess, like anything is possible, but until I have like actual tangible proof of it, and I would even need a lot more proof than that. Like I would need to see it during the day and sit down and talk with it and ask it a few questions <laughs> before I really accepted, you know, right. its existence and what it was and its purpose and things. So um, it didn't change much. I was just kind of like, all right, that's, I hope I'm safe. That was pretty much it. What do you think made it leave? Yeah, I think it just got bored. I think it was like, this is a lost cause. I can't get her to wake up. I'm right. out of here. I've heard that before, uh, somebody being tormented nightly for a month, every night, being scared by some kind of goblin creature that she claimed jumped up on her bed and up on her chest and just got a lot of energy and, and enjoyment out of scaring her to death. And what finally made it go away was she was so exhausted and tired, at one point she didn't even couldn't control herself and she laughed right in its face and just had this thought like, you are ridiculous. This is silly. Why? And it just had this yeah. puzzled look on its face like, well, you're not supposed to react that way. And then it would just, all right, I'm out of here. Poof. Yeah. And this was, isn't fun anymore. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't fun anymore for them. But were there other experiences that happened after this that may or may not have been connected in your mind? I don't think they were um, necessarily connected, but there were just a lot of strange things that happened in that apartment. And my friend was there to witness a lot of them. One thing he did not witness is things would disappear a lot, normal everyday items. And it would be something that, you know, I used every day that I knew I put on my dresser that would just disappear And they would disappear for like months at a time, and they would always reappear over the dishwasher. (laughs) And after a few times of that happening, I would be like, can you please like bring my exercise bands back? (laughs) They were right here yesterday. And within a couple of days, they would be there on the counter over the dishwasher. Things that he did witness was um, we were hanging out in my living room. There was like a big orb that just came floating through, maybe almost at the ceiling, greenish white ball of light from the patio, like all the way in to like the chimney and like went into the chimney. We both just kind of looked at each other and we were kind of like, you know, that was something. And he was like, okay, we're going to do this like very scientifically, like you give me some details. I'm going to give you some details. And we can kind of compare. And so we know that we're not like feeding off of each other. And he's like, all right, first of all, what color was it? But I was the one that asked him, like, what path did it take? You know, and we just kind of went back and forth like that just to just to make sure. I don't know what it was just to make sure we each weren't crazy, I guess. And then um, at one point it moved from the chimney into my bathroom. And we kind of did the same thing again. Like, did you? 
see that? Yeah. And this is what happened. Okay. Yeah. And this is where it is now. And we've, we saw like a shadowy figure standing on my patio one night. We heard crazy noises. And this is what I always kind of just was like, all right, it's cats fighting. I like, I've had cats forever. I've heard cats fighting. I've heard cats doing other stuff. That sounds insane. It does sound like they're killing each other, mm-hmm. even when they're, you know, yeah, oh yeah. doing whatever <laughs> romantically. Right. That wasn't what it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, I remember the first time he was over and heard it and he kind of looked at me and I was like, ah, this is, chupacabras, whatever. They live in that tree out there. (laughs) As you're telling this story, uh, you know, we're seeing you on video. This is going to go out on audio, but you were holding your hands up. You seem to be indicating that the size of the orb was fairly large. I mean, it almost seemed like you were holding up a volleyball or a basketball. Was it that big? Yeah, it was probably bigger than that. I mean, it was... Like a beach ball. Like a beach ball, yeah. Because that's not something you hear with uh, with regard to orbs. And and it's funny, we've joked about orbs on the show (laughs) over the years. Because when I started out, I was just like, ah, it's the camera, it's a lens flare, it's a lens flare. That's got an agnostic point. Yeah, that's his. uh, No, but but I've come around on them. I've seen some myself in paranormal investigation footage that clearly wasn't a lens flare. Although the lens Mm. flare and dust on a lens a lot of times is what it is. But when you're seeing it with your own eyes, there's no camera involved. So that's... (laughs) You know, that removes that whole part of the equation. But the fact that it was that big also seemed like with your hand gestures, you were, the way you're describing it was was moving kind of slow as well. Yeah, it was very stable. I mean, it wasn't like jerking around and it wasn't like a sun where it was like rays of light. It had pretty sharp edges and it was fairly bright, but it wasn't like blinding or anything. And it just kind of hovered over pretty slowly. Like it was an observation probe, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but with a little bit of consciousness to it. hmm yeah. You think, generally, it had something to do, it was tied to that place in some way, not to any one person. The area, probably. So, Coral Springs is mm-hmm. a little bit west of Fort Lauderdale. So, in Florida, if you're not on the West Coast or on the East Coast, you go inland a couple of hours and you're in the Everglades. Yeah. So, it's the most natural area that you can actually live in in South Florida. Mm-hmm. There were way less people. It was still apartment complexes, but there were more open areas, more trees in Coral Springs, at least at that time. Mm-hmm than any other part of South Florida I lived in. Well, what is the state of things today? How uh, How is your life? Is there any more weirdness happening? Or has that all calmed down and you think it's over? Yeah, I never saw that thing again. Um, never really had any other experiences. I've had the door settling to the patio for no reason. And you're kind of like, mm, that's weird. It kind of like opened a little like. Mm-hmm. As an agnostic and skeptical, you know, reasoned person, what's your final take on what you encountered? I mean, as I read all those um, legends and stories that night, I was like, that really sounds like it. Because when I've read about people seeing ghosts and things, and it's always like, oh, you can see through it. It's like an apparition. It's, I got such a sense that it was actually physically there. And not just that it was there physically, like, like it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard for it to be there. It wasn't like it was expending all this energy and effort to appear solid. It was just solid because it was kind of supposed to be there. Yeah. More of that, like having like an intuitive sense of the rules, essentially. Like I got a sense that it was allowed to be there. That's what made me kind of think more like along the lines of this is its territory. 
so to speak. Well, reptiles would be nothing new to South Florida. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Even thinking about it later, what immediately came to mind was, all right, well, I mean, it was allowed to be there. Like, that's not against the rules. Like, it's allowed to be in that area wherever it wants. My apartment just happened to be there. And I was like, why am I, why am I thinking that? Mallory Kennington, we'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time to tell this story. These stories are often personal and you, it can uh, be a little nerve wracking to share them in a forum. So uh, we really appreciate your offering to do that for us and our listeners. Yeah, thank you guys. I really enjoyed it. Greetings. This is J-Dub. Some of you may know me as Nicholas Flamel or the Count of St. Germain. When I'm not in my lab, or having a top-secret meeting to discuss the state of the world, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, it's at this point I would like to refer to Chambers' Dictionary of the Unexplained, page 277, <laughs> Goblin. Nice. A general term for a small, dark, ugly, and mischievous or evil fairy. No offense if there's any in here. I'm looking behind me. Oh, you're reading from the book. I, I'm reading from the book. Me. Listen, I swear you were looking at me when you said that, but... In Western folklore, the word goblin is used to refer to any small, dark, and ugly fairy of a mischievous or evil disposition. It comes from the old French, goblin, which probably derived from the Greek, kobalos, meaning a Mm. mischievous spirit. And the term includes bogarts, bogies, and bogles, among others. They are said to live underground, especially in churchyards or between the roots of ancient trees, and are most likely to be seen at Halloween. Some people claim that the race of goblins originated from a cleft in the Spanish Pyrenees and from there spread all over Europe. Goblins are most common in English and French folklore and are usually portrayed as diminutive and grotesque figures who visit human dwellings, usually in order to wreak havoc there at night, knocking on doors and walls, breaking pots and pans. Folktales generally hold that it is wise to leave some food and milk out for them at night to gain their goodwill. They are usually merely playful, but like most fairies, can be malicious and harmful if crossed. A smile from a goblin can turn milk sour and curdle the blood, and its laugh makes the fruit fall off the trees. So, there you go with that. We have covered Hmm. goblins once before. Everyone may remember the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins, which also thought maybe if you tie it all together with Hellier Mm -hmm. and everything else, they come out of the mountains, come out of the ground there and go to people's houses. It's interesting you say that because a lot of legends share similarities across cultures. And I'm not just talking about North America, Europe, Asia, Africa, in that if you remember, I think part of the Skinwalker lore was that there were these beings that once existed before human beings came. And then we showed up and they tolerated us for a little while. And then we were so filled with nonsense in their eyes that they said, we're done. We're out of here. We're going back into the mountain. And maybe they come out occasionally here and there. Maybe they do. Maybe they're going to visit Mallory in Florida. Well, there are lots of lizards and gators there. So who knows? But you do wonder, though, when people throughout uh, folklore and history have seen something weird, like whatever showed up in Kelly Hopkinsville, if that showed up centuries, thousands of years earlier in another culture, and it was just reported, is there any similarity there? Or is it just part of a collective unconscious character that uh, just, it's just universal. People just do it. They just have it. And uh, they think they're seeing things and that's what they write down. Or do things like this really do happen and have been since time immemorial? All right. From one tradition to the next, we've talked about them before, but here we are again with something that you wouldn't think was all that common. 
But it turns out more people have seen one than you would think. The doppelganger. Yeah, we got a lot more doppelganger stories than I think either of us would have bet on. So it's pretty rare as an occurrence, as a happening, but it does seem to happen. And again, just the sampling of over uh, maybe 120, 130 stories by now, out of all those, more doppelganger stories showed up than you would imagine. All right, folks, we would like to welcome Moses Velasquez to the show. So Moses, why don't you introduce yourself, say hello to the audience, tell them a little bit about yourself and your background, maybe how long you've been listening to Astonishing Legends, and and uh, what made you decide to send this story in? Uh, well, my name is Moses Velasquez. I've been uh, listening to Astonishing Legends since 2016. I think that was when the Mothman episode came out, and I saw how long the episodes were, and I was seeing how many parts were coming out, and I was like, oh, this is my thing. I want to see more. Why not a part six? But you also love movies like we do, and you have a YouTube channel where you discuss motion pictures, right? So yeah, it, it is a YouTube channel I started quite a while ago with my brother, and it's basically a, a video essay channel where we talk about movies that we really, really enjoy, really like, and as you can see, they're sometimes they're a bit weird, a bit off. Like, let's say The Fly or something that's just a bit off kilter, like The Lobster. <laughs> we like to talk about movies that don't feel disposable and that feel like they're, they're giving us like kind of a lesson in itself. For our listeners, what's the name of your channel so they can find it? The YouTube channel is called uh, Screened. It's been there for over four years. Is this the brother you're going to be talking about in your story tonight? Yes, it's, it is him. He is my eldest brother. And he is someone who uh, I've always looked up to. He is uh, the person who, uh, you know, always uh, proofreads everything I write. And uh, I, whenever I, I have an idea, I just pass it through him. So he's always been in a certain high place, uh, high esteem for me. So we used to sleep in the same uh, room. His bed would be like a meter away from mine. And Knowing that in the room there's someone else, like just the white noise of someone else in that room, it kind of comforts you in a way. Because as a child, I feel like I was always a bit afraid of anything that could go bump in the night or, or stuff like that. Especially that night, because I was, for some reason, I felt something was a bit off. But I, I wasn't thinking that it was something supernatural or anything like that. But it just felt like I didn't want to go to sleep alone that night. And before I went to sleep, my parents were like comforting me and we come from a very religious background. So they were, you know, it's like, everything's fine. You're, and it's like, God is always with you and everything. And I was like, okay, I'm going to fall asleep. It's going to be normal. And later that night, I wake up in a way that I usually don't wake up because I wake up like in a ball and with all my covers around me. And I felt it was strange. And then... There was this weird feeling that also accompanied that, this feeling of dread. And as a child, you don't experience that often. At least I didn't experience it often. And it just felt like there's something in the room that just isn't normal. So I just grabbed my covers and take them off my head. For some reason, they felt extremely like they felt like this kind of safety from whatever could be out there. And when I take it off, my eyes are adjusting to the darkness of the room. And in front of me, there's like this window. And 
in the window, you can see kind of some light from the street coming in. And the first thing that I see from that window is a silhouette, like this darkened silhouette. And my immediate thought is that, oh, there's someone outside and they're trying to get in the house or something like that. But as my eyes get more accustomed to the darkness, I notice that it was actually someone that was inside the room with me. And I actually did notice the face and it looked almost exactly like my brother. And at that moment, completely, I was just freaked out. And I grabbed the blanket again and I covered myself again. And in that moment, you're kind of like confused. And in, you're a child, yes, and you, you feel like you know a lot of, uh, you can discern certain things from reality and fantasy. But to me, this was just completely abnormal. Like this is not supposed to happen. So in that moment, I was just thinking to myself, okay, maybe I'm just the one who didn't see it right. Even though I'm freaked out, maybe I didn't see it well. Maybe it's just a shadow. Maybe it's just something passing. Maybe I'm just scared. So again, with whatever courage I had as a child in that moment, I lift it up and it's still there. At this time, it's closer. It's close to my brother's bed, which is again, a meter away. And he was wearing like the same pajamas my brother had, you know, the same design, same patterns. Uh, his hair was the same hairstyle that he had and even his glasses. And it was so strange because it's like in that quick amount of time, I was just scanning him, seeing like, is this really him until, you know, I see his face and there is just something wrong with the face. It's as if 95% of it is exactly the same thing, but the 5% that is off makes it completely horrifying. And again, I hide under my covers and this time I could feel like my heartbeat. I could feel just everything racing. You know, usually when you tell yourself to see if you're dreaming, you pinch yourself or something. And I didn't even have time to pinch myself. I just dug my nails into my hand, into the palm of my hand. I was like, oh, this is really not a dream. There is something definitely out there that looks like my brother, and I don't know what it's about to do to me. So now, for the third time, for some reason, curiosity is just stronger than fear. And I just had to look again. So I, I grabbed my covers and just slowly moved them from my face. And this time I realized that he's just right in front of me on my bed. My whole body was just shaking. And it's like really up to my face, really close. And he's smiling. And it's like, at first it's a close smile. But then as he's getting closer, it's like his mouth is opening and you can see a grin. But the weird thing is that the first thing that I thought were there are too many teeth and they're all too close to each other, overlapping. And that in itself is freaking me out. But then, then I see his eyes and his eyes are, of course, they're not my brother's eyes. It's not like there was something completely unnatural in the sense like it's a lizard or some type of eye like that. It's just there is some kind of 
a malice in the eyes, like something that you wouldn't see like in a normal human being or as a child, I would never see that in someone else's face. It's like this cruel intention that it has. And then it's getting closer and closer. And for the last time I put my blanket down and I shove my face into the bed and it's like, I'm just completely losing it. And in that moment, since I have a very religious upbringing, I started to do a quick prayer, the quickest prayer I could do. Basically, it's like, God save me, that's it. And I stayed there for the longest time. And then I decided to look again and I lift the covers and there was nothing, it was gone. Whatever there was there was just completely disappeared and I stayed there for a whole few minutes just waiting for something. And then I run to my parents. I don't even tell them what happened because how can you explain that? And I just tell them I need to sleep with them. Of course, later on, I, I told them what happened, but it's one of those things that you see and you have no real explanation for it because I don't even assign like a label to it. I don't, I don't say it's a ghost. I don't say it's a demon. I don't say what it could be. I, all I know is that night I saw something that I have no explanation for. What did your parents say about it when you told them the story? They were surprised. They were very surprised. And of course, they prayed with me just to cover any bases. Mm-hmm. Sure. But no, they were very surprised. And they, there's a certain thing that it's like they want to believe you. But also, mm-hmm. if they do believe you, then they have to accept that there was something there that night. And right. you know, they couldn't do anything about it. How old were you at the time, Moses? I was nine years old. When you said it was on the bed, had it come? Did it sit down on the bed? It went from standing and transition to sitting on the bed? That's the thing that I'm, that I'm trying to think about, because I think out of my fear, I didn't realize when, if I could feel that it shifted, if I could feel that the weight of it on the bed. But I, I did not think about that, and I didn't feel it in that moment. We have another story that you won't have heard um, that's a little bit similar to this. It's going to be airing in this same episode, but it's also very different in terms of what the person saw. So. One of the questions that we asked um, her was, did you sense any physicality to the presence or hear like it stepping on the floor or anything like that? Or was it just a visual presence? I think it was just visual. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel because I can't give another description of when it comes to sound or when it comes to like a smell. It was just visual to me. And it had that sense. And it was in the sense of a doppelganger. It had that thing where things were almost right, but not quite. And in fact, the closer you got, the more disconcerting or uncanny it was. Definitely uncanny. When you first were woken up under the covers, and that was unusual itself, but you got the sense that something wasn't right, and really that overwhelming sense that something is off, maybe foreboding, and you take your head out from under the covers and you see the shape. That's, as you said, you thought at first was outside the window and you're on the first floor, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So maybe somebody's outside the window, but then you realize like, no, this is worse. Somebody's inside. And did it at first have the impression that it was your brother or did you immediately know that this was supposed to look like him, but it wasn't? What was that first impression of who this shape was? At first, I didn't think it was him. Like at first, I just thought there was, I don't know, someone was in my room. That's what I felt. Right. 
I felt right. like it was just this, perhaps not dark figure, but just this person that was there. Yeah. It didn't feel like a shadow. It didn't feel like, uh, it, it, right. it looked like a person. Is this thing appears or starts to appear. You knew in that state when you're, you've just woken up that your brother's out of town or he's, he's on this school trip. He should not be in the bedroom and that it wasn't him having somehow come home at night without you, you know, while you were asleep and yeah. uh, he cut the trip short. It just, it wasn't him. Do you have a feeling like this thing started off as kind of a blank shape or a figure and started to turn into your brother in those moments? I would say it was, it always looked like him. And one reason why is because the uh, shape of his hair, because his hair <laughs> is curly. So you, mm -hmm. you can, you, you notice it turned into a little afro sometimes. Right. If he, right. If he didn't do anything with it, and especially <laughs> if he was asleep. Yeah. So that's why I say that it looked like that part of the silhouette looked very much like him. When you first, you were just off the cuff saying, you know, this was a person, this was my brother. It wasn't something like a lizard. What made you throw out the term lizard there? I think it was more so people can see or what they could imagine the ice would look like. Because it doesn't look like a beast. It doesn't look like a creature. Mm -hmm. It is these type of human eyes, but these human eyes that are just deformed by this dark emotion. Where did this take place? Where were you living at the time? Well, we were living in, in, uh, in the apartment. It was, yeah, it's basically the lowest level. And this is Montreal. And all I remember, it was at night... Did you ever have any other instances in that apartment? Personally, no. Like myself, I haven't had any other occurrences, thankfully. For some reason, I feel like this is a one and done type of situation. Like whatever it was, they're not going to ask more from me in the sense of <laughs> we freaked you out enough. This is it. Right, right. Well, that's my hope anyway. But uh, when it comes to my family, my brother hasn't had anything. My parents, well, yeah. For some reason, it's, I think it's also very much tied to Latin American culture where you feel like the real and the abnormal live side by side. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there is like there's a ghost that haunts that little place or stuff like that for us. And I have been around certain other people who have had experiences, but that's my only one that is specifically mine. There is one thing that a lot of people that I know, because I, I grew up in a church and the church was haunted. And there's so many different stories about people seeing something there or just objects flying or a noise. Like if someone's walking late at night, someone hears like a noise of a choir singing when there's no one there. And also seeing a little girl that we, we just called La Nina for some reason. So that's kind of like where I've grown up in. Boy, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like that's a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's unrelated <laughs> to, to right. whatever happened to you. And it, to, for me, I guess one of the things that is interesting when somebody experiences something like what you experienced, and it is just the one time. In a lot of ways, I guess for some reason it feels almost easier to believe. But then by the same token... We know lots of people who've had incidents going on for their whole families for decades, <laughs> and I believe them too. So it's like there's, but there, it's interesting when it's just this one thing that happened in your life, and it's the same thing with the other guest we have on tonight. There is one major difference I see with this story in that 
this wasn't just some freaky creature. This was very personal. And it's leading to a question I've now, since we've been interviewing so many folks, these are the standard questions that I ask towards the end of the interview and leading to this being very intimate and personal as far as how this thing appeared to you, which wasn't, I mean, I don't know where it farmed or sourced this appearance or how that works, of course, but why do you think it took this shape? What do you think this means? If it has any meaning other than to maybe just freak out a young kid, why do you think this happened to you? I think specifically grabbing the image of my brother, to me, it means a lot because, well, he is my older brother and I, we're three years apart. So uh, growing up, I always looked up to him. I always saw him as the person I wanted to be more like. He was the person at school that always did well. So my teachers would all, that had him would always compare me to him and be like, why aren't you more like him? Because I, I was just more like, not laser, but just the, the more creative type. I had to be curious and do things that wasn't supposed to. But yeah, to me, that's what my brother represents. So specifically grabbing that image of someone that I feel like is uh, someone who is safe, someone who would have the best intentions for me or would be kind of like a certain guide in a way, it felt like it was grabbing that relationship and turning it on its head. Well, in relation to that, do you think that this incident happened more because of the location of, of the apartment or where it was, maybe just that room, or was it more connected and related to you or the people in there? I think maybe it wasn't really because of the location or proximity or something of that nature. I think it's, it's mainly because it was specifically for me in a way, because I was always this kid that could have that amount of fear. Whatever was there, had an easy target. That's what I feel. And that was what it was there for, maybe. Yeah. And for some reason, I once posted this on Reddit. And uh, on Reddit, you can get so many different answers to. And, <laughs> you certainly and can. And people who, who sound completely so sure about their answers as if they, they've studied this for quite a while. And one of them, I like what they were saying is, I don't know if it's actually true at all, but whatever this was, it, it wanted to feed off of my my fear off of that energy. No clue what what reason or for what, but it wasn't something that was could be malicious or it wasn't something that was actually going to harm me. It was just something that wanted that reaction. And once it has that reaction, it wouldn't need to get it again. That's certainly something I've heard too, is there's a desire or something about the energy of fear that feeds things. And we've talked about that on the show before. And of course, you know, anybody that's seen Monsters, Inc. knows like, that's how the whole factory works with, with the monsters. Right? Yeah. So it's it, you do wonder. It's like, when, it, because then, you know, we have these other uh, stories that we've covered, or I, I think Jim Harrell covered one too, what, what they, uh, where the statement was, I'm going to eat your light. Well, it may have been, uh, but I think it was an EVP that was captured later. Also, uh, from the Sally House, take a drink, everyone, uh, yeah. the EVP that was very clear that said, uh, well, they can't really harm you. And a female voice sounding kind of middle-aged said, swallow your soul. 
Oh yeah, swallow. Oh yeah, it was. It was more like swallow your soul. It was really bad. <laughs> well, I don't know if it was. No, <laughs> I heard it. I remember if it that was one. Was Kathy Jimmy or Bette Midler from? Yeah, yeah, uh, Hocus yeah. Pocus. But in regards to the style in in this particular entity or whatever this thing was, in its uh, its flair, how it likes to do its business, everything kind of looks normal. It's off a little bit, but it's doing a good impression of your brother down to the jammies. And when it shows up, though. And it, it leans in close, and of course, that's unsettling because now you, you're you awake and you know your brother's not supposed to be there. It can't be him. But it has this impossible grin, which is another thing we keep hearing about. It's just too large, too many teeth. Do you think the teeth were an aspect that it couldn't get right, or do you think the teeth appeared that way because because it is close. They weren't like sharp monster fangs or anything or dripping blood. It was just a regular looking mouth, but like way mm-hmm. off. And that fact, it's like that uncanny valley. Like it's the closer you get to something, but something being off with it, you maximize the uneasy, disturbing feelings about it. Do you think that the teeth were just something that it, it just couldn't get right? Or do you think that they were presented really off like that to get more of a reaction to you out of you? I feel like it's definitely because it, it was meant to get a reaction out of me because it was, it was one of the last things that it showed. It was yeah. along with the impression of the eyes. I mean, it could be that it was mid transformation or something like that, but I, I do feel like it's really more for the reaction. That was its reveal. What do you think ended this? Was it the prayer or just like it's time's up, so it's got to move on? To be honest, I'm not really certain what it was that did it, or perhaps it reached the limit of how much fear it could get or how much of a reaction it could receive. Perhaps it did satisfy its needs or the rules that it has. So I wouldn't know. I really would not know. I mean, it would be comforting to know if it was the player that did it, that's for sure. Well, that's what got you to poke out from under the covers that one time is curiosity. Would you want to have this experience again just to find out an answer perhaps or just to see what that was like hell no <laughs> <laughs> no but it's uh like now i can laugh about it but in the moment yeah. it felt like one of the scariest things i could ever live like it felt like my heart was about to burst out of my chest like i felt like it could faint at any moment and sometimes i do feel like could this happen again But for some reason, I'm not worried about myself. I'm not worried about if it happens to me. What I'm worried about, and this is the part of the story and I don't tell people, usually it's like, what if it happens to my child? And what can I tell them (laughs) in that moment? So that's what sometimes comes up in my head. Like, what if this thing ever pops up again? Well, I don't know how you feel about doppelgangers, but there's something about it psychologically. It's not always the most gory, grotesque, goblin-like creature you see. They often look like someone you know. Sometimes it's like yourself. Imagine seeing a copy of yourself somewhere that's not in the mirror. (laughs) And that must be extremely, ultimately disturbing. But I do think, yes, there's something psychological about it that's even more off-putting. So, like seeing a doppelganger, the closer it is to somebody you know, or yourself, but just being off a tiny bit, that really cranks up the disturbing knob. 
Yeah, that's uh, that gets into the uncanny valley. Like yeah. people uh, get that feeling when a robot is almost human, but something is not quite right. That's yeah. that's when it gets real bad. Well, now we're going to move on to our third story. We're calling it the genie, which is, you all know, is something that generally comes mm. along and grants you wishes, generally three wishes in most cases, right. and is originated from the Arabic spirit created from smokeless fire known as the jinn. Yeah, we did get one fascinating jinn story, or perhaps a jinn, out in the desert. So it's it was pretty authentic. So we'd like to record that later on and uh, reach out to that person. That was yes. a very powerful experience. Well, speaking of powerful, the jinn are all powerful and as numerous as grains of sand. They understand every language and therefore must always be spoken of with great respect. Yeah, they're, they're always around, apparently. Right, as, as the grains of sand are all around us. And some may even be magically bound to objects, which may be the case in this story. But this story may also be something different. It may be about a bruja or brujo. There are varying definitions of bruja and brujo, mm -hmm. with some saying it's folks that uh, practice witchcraft. Others say it's more akin to sorcery or lower forms of magic, both white and black magic. Well, whatever the case, as you're about to hear, it certainly seems like a possibility. Or could it have been a genie? All right, folks, we would like to welcome Clairette to the show. She is a listener who sent us a very interesting story. It was a different flavor from all the other ones we got, and it jumped out at us, so we wanted to share it with everyone else. Clairette, thank you for coming on. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and maybe how you started listening to Astonishing Legends? Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Clairette Johansson. Before was Clairette Hernandez. I'm from Venezuela. I'm from a, a city called Coro. It's in the coast of Venezuela, close to the to the Caribbean. So it's a very nice and warm place. Uh, now I live in Sweden. I married a Swedish guy and I moved to the middle north part of Sweden. So it's cold and dark and <laughs> but I I'm happy to be here. So yes, I'm an information engineer. And uh, right now I work at the Swedish uh, company registration office. Okay. And so are you missing warm and beautiful Venezuela then? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> how long have you been in Sweden? 20 years. And how did you become familiar with Astonishing Legends? As you can imagine, I like this kind of podcast and I used to listen to uh, audiobooks and stuff about horror and uh, history and you know, all these things like different gods and everything mystical and uh, for me it's that very interesting and you came out in my spotify as a, um, as a suggestion yes and i just listened to the first i started from the beginning i think that was like many years ago i haven't been listening to you for a very long time and i i always like to start from the beginning and I think I caught up with all the the episodes <laughs> yes. very very soon because I usually listen when I when I cook when I clean all the time and I really like you. Oh, thank you so oh, much! Thank you so much. Just so our listeners know, you so English not your first language. You speak what three languages? I speak Spanish, English, and Swedish. Okay. Okay. I understand Norwegian if they speak slow, and Portuguese <laughs> if they speak slow. Okay. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah, I, I love how she you started off your story with three things to keep in mind. Could you tell our audience what those are? 
the three things you need to think or you need to know. The first one, my friend, the one I was waiting for when this happened, was never late. She was always on time, and I was there on time too. So uh, we didn't have the time to waste or wait. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. Uh, the second one was that I had money on with me because we were going uh, shopping after we. That this was the last year in university, so everything was almost done. Right. So uh, we're going to party that, that weekend, and you know, you know, girls, <laughs> sure. uh, we need to buy some new clothes for the weekend. So I had money with me. So, and the third thing was that I was wearing jeans, and this is also very important for the story. So. Now I start telling my story. Everything started the night before this happened. Uh, like I say, I'm from Venezuela. The city I went to university is called Valencia. And that's in, like in the middle of the country, but on, almost on the coast too. It's the third largest city in Venezuela. It's not the city where I grew up, but that's where I went to university. And usually it doesn't rain that much. That, that's what I want to say. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very warm and yes, it doesn't rain that much. But that night, the night before this happened, it was raining really, really bad. It was, you know, like lightnings and everything. And I woke in the middle of the night and I saw because my, my bed was right in front of the window. So I could see outside that it was raining. And then when I turned to the side, I was, uh, I had a roommate and there were two beds and between us, it was just the way between two mm -hmm. beds and not in bed. When I turned to, to look at my roommate, I saw a girl, she was maybe nine, 10 years old, standing beside me, the bed, looking at me. And she was wet. It was like, it was dripping water all the way. I couldn't see their face, but I saw what she was, it looked like she was nine. It looked like she had like uh, maybe brown hair or something like that, but it was dark. It was raining. We were sleeping. It was in the middle of the night, but I saw her and I was so afraid. So I tried to scream like, you know, now afterward, after all this year, I know that it's called sleep paralysis. I mm -hmm. didn't know that then. So I really tried to wake up. I didn't know if I was dreaming or if it was for real, was she there? And I tried to wake up my roommate, but I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. I could see through the window that it was raining, that it was lightning. It was almost like a movie. I could see it was raining outside. I could hear the rain and I could see the girl, but I didn't know if it was real or no. So after trying and trying, I finally could like wake up and I, scream my, my friend's name, but she didn't even wake up. You do what you do when this thing happens. I was very scared, afraid, but I went back to sleep after that. So this was the night before. The next day, that is when this incident happened, or the encounter, I, I say, I didn't have a car. So I went to university with my friend that lived in the same area where I live. And I used to wait for her in the corner of the building that I was leaving. And it, there was a car parking there, and I remember I sat on the car. You say that? Sat on the car? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. To my friend. And like I said before, she was never late. 
and I was always on time because I didn't want her to wait for me, but I didn't want to stay there by myself and wait in the sun and, uh, you know, a girl alone in the corner, no nice that year. So I usually try to time it. So mm-hmm. she didn't have to wait and I didn't have to wait. But I have time to, I sat on the car and I was waiting for her. And then it was this old guy with a little girl that walked past me. They walked past, they looked at me, and then they went back to me. The guy looked at me and he asked me if I have family in this southern mountain. And that is a place, everybody knows what it is in Venezuela. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to high school. Only girls, nuns, you know, everything. But even then I knew what sort of mountain was, everybody knows. That is like a spiritism or like witches and stuff like that. So I knew what it was. So, uh, Sorte Mountain is like a like a mystical place, a spiritual yes. place, and most of the locals know that it is a special magical place, but are they afraid of it? Yes, I think so. I, I was afraid. I think most of people are afraid mm. uh, because if you're Catholic, you know, you don't supposed to... To do have anything to do with that kind of thing because it's not right. good, it's not, it's not God, you know, everything they have with the religion are, and to, they have to do with the religion. But I've heard that, for example, they have like stages in the mountain, so mm-hmm. you can't just go or climb all the way up, you have to pass some tests to get to the next level and to the next level. I've heard, I don't know, I haven't been there, right. but that's what I heard. When you say pass these tests, are you just talking about physical tests or spiritual tests? I don't know. I think it's spiritual tests. So I don't know, but that's what I heard. Are there lots of local legends about strange things happening there? There are many legends. So to repeat, this old gentleman and the little girl who appeared at your bedside the night before have now stopped, noticed you, and asked you if you have any family in Sorte Mountain. And you said that you didn't have family on that side of the country. No. But then what does he ask you? Then he asked me, are you sure that you don't have any family on that side of the country? And I said, no, I don't have any. I don't say anything that I'm not. I only say I'm not from that area. Mm-hmm. I don't say I'm from this city. I don't say that I come from where I'm from. I only say, no, I don't know anybody there. I haven't been there and I don't have any family there. And then he told me that there's someone there that told him that he was going to get like a big surprise because he was coming from the mountain. So he said that he, she told him that he was getting a big surprise when he came to Valencia and that he was going to meet someone that is, it was going to impress him. And he didn't understand what it was, but then when he saw me, he knew that it was me he was meant to meet. Mm. Because that person looked, or I look, or she looked exactly like that person. That we look exactly like each other, like if we were twin sisters. 
we look exactly like each other. He had never seen something like this. And he asked me how old I was. So I told him, no, but I'm, uh, I was 21, 22. He said, no, she's a little bit younger than you. So she was 18 or something like that, but you look too much alike. And she sent you something because she knew I was gonna meet you. She sent you something. And every time he said something to me, he looked at this girl that looked exactly like the girl in my beside my bed the night before and asked it, isn't that so? Or is is it like, like that? Like ask her if he was telling the truth or not. She never talked. She only nod with the head or said, mm-hmm. So I never heard her talking. Right. He was the one doing all the talking. He's standing here saying, you have this twin in Sorte Mountain who's a little younger than you, but nearly identical. And I knew, and he knew that he was going to have an experience, but he didn't know what it was until he saw you and realized you looked just like this person. And then on top of that, with him is this young girl from your dream the night before that he's getting confirmations from as he's talking. Yes, confirmation, that's the word, yes. And then he says that he is from Sorte Mountain. He said he's coming from Ah. that, from there. He was there before, yes. Did he say that the little girl with him was living in the mountain or that was the girl that he said you look just like? No, the girl that looked like me lived in the mountain, not the girl with him. The little girl is only nine or... Yeah, nine, ten, something like that, yes. Did you get the impression or did he say that this little girl was also or lived at Sorte Mountain? I think so because if because he was asking her to confirm everything he was saying. So in my mind, I was like, oh, she was with him in the matter. That's why I right, right. because he was asking her all the time. And then he sent, he told me that she has sent something to me. And I was like, okay. And in my mind, right then, I started to think I don't have any money. But I did have money. But in my mind, I have always this, so that I don't have any money because I thought he wants just to send me something because that's what you always think. So, and I didn't ask price or anything. And then I said, okay, yes, of course, she sent something to me. You know, you're like ironic or I don't believe you or whatever. I I was 20. So, you know, the, the uh, attitude you have when you're 20 and some old guys trying to sell you something. On the street, <laughs> sure, you know? yeah. So I was like, okay, uh-huh. And uh, I didn't believe him, of course. And then he told me, I know you don't believe me. I can see that you don't believe me. And I say, no, of course I don't believe you. I mean, who's this girl that looks just like me and sent something to me? Mm-hmm. And then uh, before, he opened, he had a briefcase. So he opened it, he took out something. I ne- never saw what it was, never saw it. But he took so- that. And he took my hand, or asked for my hand, and took my hand, and he put the thing in my hand and closed it with my hand and his hand. And like I wrote, it was like a little cushion, I think you say, mm-hmm. that, that was more that could fit in my hand. Like a little pillow. A little pillow. It was like velvet. Mm-hmm. It felt like baby was soft, but I, I never saw what it was. And it was like a square pillow, like you said, like mm-hmm. a pillow in my hand. And he, my hand, and he closed it, and then his hand. And then he told me, I know that you don't believe me, and I'm going to prove to you that what I'm telling you is the truth. And then he started to tell me my life 
everything that had happened to me up to that moment that I was there studying that I wasn't from that city and that did, I didn't tell him that from the beginning I just told him that I didn't have family in the mountain but I didn't tell him that I didn't live in that city from the beginning and he told me you're not from this city uh, you are studying it was a guy that I like you know and he told me about the guy how the guy looked everything he told me everything up to that day he told me that uh like i told you that i was wearing jeans it was the first time in weeks that i have jeans on because i have an infection on my right thigh and uh, it was like a, i had like an operation so i couldn't have anything that was tight or anything that you know so i had only skirts and i have have been wearing skirts for weeks so i was really happy that day because it was the first time and it was party that weekend and was gonna go out and buy clothes so he told me that he told me you had an operation on your a surgery a small surgery in your right thigh and today is the first time you're wearing pants i mean my jaw dropped when he told me that because what how did he know that that was 94 five, six or something like that. No internet, no social media, no Facebook, not even email, nothing. How could he know that it was the first time I had that? How could he know the guy I like? And every time he said something that was true as a prediction or an intuition, he would turn to the little girl and again, isn't that right? Yes, he told me something and then he looked at her. Isn't that right? And she would nod or say, mm-hmm, and then he would keep talking to me. So she never talked. He was talking. And all the time with the pillow or whatever in my hand. Then I got a little bit scared because how, how do you know everything? At the same time, I have this voice in my head. You don't have any money. You don't have any money. What do you think that was? You, you go out of your way to point that out when you tell this story. What do you think that voice was? Sometimes I think now I'm not as religious as I was then, but I think it was someone trying to protect me. Mm, I think because I have money, but at the same time, all the time, I have this little voice telling me, you don't have money. It's a warning. Don't buy it. It was like, you don't have money, but I have money. I was thinking it could have been your own even your own subconscious trying to protect you Yes, yes. from what's about to happen next. Do you think that the little girl was the one giving this old man the information and that's why he kept saying, isn't that right? I haven't thought about that. (laughs) But it was she giving him the information. I didn't think about that that way. Well, I mean, it, it just seems like there is a relationship between these two somehow that it is a contract. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but to remind our audience again is that he was told that he would get a big surprise. He would get some kind of gift if he were to deliver a gift to the person, you, the girl that was a little older but looked exactly like your twin who was a few years younger than you who lived in uh, uh, Sorte Mountain. My question is, do you think that if this girl existed that she was a bruja? A witch, maybe. Maybe she was the bruja. I thought always that he was the brujo, but maybe ah. she was the bruja because she was the one 
I saw in my dream. Right. And she was with him all the time, even though she didn't talk. But right. now when you say that, that's, I never thought that maybe she was the one. <laughs> I always thought she was just with him. Well, I was, and also was wondering if the uh, the twin, who he said uh, lived in Sorte Mountain, was maybe he met a bruja. Uh, yes, I'm sure she was the bruja too. Yeah, that I'm okay. sure. I'll, yes, that I'm sure she was. So he tells you all these amazing things that turn out to be true that he couldn't possibly know about your life and you. What happens next? Yeah, he told me everything that happened to me then, and then he started telling me that if I get this gift, if I accept the gift, I will get everything I want. I could win the lottery. I could get buy cars and get money to buy cars, everything I wanted. I could marry the guy I liked then. Everything. You could get everything you ever dream of if you take this gift. And I would keep telling him, I don't have the money. Then he started asking me, he asked me, I think the last time, he didn't ask but once, only once, are you sure? And I said, no, I don't have the money. And then he said, okay. Then he took it back, put it in the briefcase, and he told me before they left, that I should go to the mountain and visit the mountain because she was waiting for me. And that if I go there, everybody would know who I was and where I was supposed to go because they would recognize me because we were so alike. So he said, when you can or if you can or when you can, you can go to the mountain. And then when he turned and started to go, then I asked him, how much does it cost? Because all this time, I've been telling him, I don't have any money. I don't have any money. But I never asked once how much the, the, the present, the gift cost. And then he told me that it cost five bolivares. And that, if you change it to US dollar, is I think it's not even 25 cents. It's like nothing. Even if I didn't have any money, even if I wasn't going shopping afterward, I would have. Five believers. I mean, that's nothing. It's nothing. And then I, then I, I took my bag, my purse, and of course I have, of course I have five believers. And then he looked at her, looked at me, and told me, "You have three wishes, and you just told no to all of them." And they, they kept walking. But then I saw my friend's car turning around the corner. And she coming to me and she comes and she was very sorry because she was late. She was never late. I don't even remember what she said. And then I tried to explain to her everything that happened in the two seconds. I asked her, did you see a old man and a little girl? And she was, no, I didn't see anybody. And they went that way, the same way she came from. And she said, no, I didn't see it. And I told her just about the wishes. And he promised me three wishes if I buy something he had with him. And we drove around like one or twice. And we didn't find them anywhere. So it was like, okay, <laughs> that happened to me. So I don't know. I told a friend we, after we drove around, we went and picked up another friend. And I told him everything. And he was, I'm really glad you didn't took it. He thought that wasn't a good thing. Yeah. He thought that you maybe were like selling your soul to the devil or something like that. He thought my mom, when I told my mom, she was also really glad that 
I'm really happy you say no, that I don't think that was a good thing, and nothing good comes from the mountain, so yeah. that he thought always that it was a good thing. Would you have bought the thing, or what would you have done? We're very glad you didn't take the exchange or the the offer because just to clarify, reading the uh, detail here in your email, did he ask you three times that magical number three? No, he just asked you the one time. The last time, the last before he left, then he asked me, but maybe he was counting the times I Uh, say that I didn't have money because I was thinking about it, but I I don't remember if I told him all the time that I didn't have money. But I don't know, but the last time he asked. And after that, he just took it back and just left. What did he look like? He wasn't that tall. I'm not tall. He was <laughs> almost like me or maybe a little bit shorter. If he was white or, yes, in Minnesota, you have people of all colors and, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. But he was white with white hair. How old do you think he was? 70-something. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, between 65 and 75, something like that. He was old. Was he dressed like a traveler or how was he dressed? He's Venezuela, so it was like jeans and just a t-shirt or something okay. like that. Or a shirt, maybe. I think it was white or that was many years ago. But I think it was a light color in jeans that I remember. And was the little girl dressed the same as you remembered her in your dream or differently? She was wet in my dream. And she was, I think she had a, a dress in my dream and she was all wet and she had a dress when she was with him. But I can't say if it was the same dress because it was dark and she was wet. So I don't know if it was the same clothes. Well, to answer your question about what would you do? I mean, I can't say for the listeners, they all are going to have their own opinions. I, but, but for me, since we've done the show, I would have said no. But before we started doing the show, I might have said yes. Just out of curiosity, I would have been curious about the object. But by the same token, there's a component of this story that's interesting to me, too, because you talk about not having money. And I think there's a nuance there that we need to understand because there's a certain component, especially when you are in a larger city or you're and you're bumping into people and someone's asking you for something. You know, at least for me in New York, a lot of times it meant you were about to be conned or tricked or whatever. Yes. So there's some of that concern I think you have. But there's another part of it that seems like, you, like you said, it's more of a protecting thing. It's not just an instinct that this might not be a good interaction. It's an instinct that there's something more going on here, right? Yes. And like I said, the girl, and just he asking her, and I have this nightmare the night before. You know, I wasn't afraid when, when I met them. I wasn't scared. I was then when he started telling me everything. Then I was like, what? This is not normal. Yeah. And nobody gives you anything for free. Like he said, <laughs> you're going to win the lottery. You're going to get married to the guy. And I was, what if he does not, not the guy? Because I knew he wasn't good. You know, you yeah. know. And, <laughs> and he was like, you're going to get married to this guy and you're going to win the lottery. And I was like, mm, I don't know why. N- nothing is for free. That is the main point of this, I think, just philosophically. But I had an idea. I was wondering what you thought. The gift to get everything you wanted only cost about 25 cents or less. And so my thinking, though, is that the price was not important. What was important is the exchange, is that you agreed. You (laughs) gave your consent and an exchange of money for this in any amount or just even something for this exchange. And therefore you are 
complicit, I guess, in this outcome. And again, the price may not be money on your part, but I think is what your subconscious or whatever was protecting you, that voice in your head saying, this is not the final price for all these things. There will be some misery. There will be some tragedy that comes because as you know, like, like we were talking about the legends of uh, Sorte Mountain and like every legend that involves this exchange, that's not the end of it. There is a bigger price to be paid for yes. earthly treasures and maybe that's uh, what was going on in your mind? Yes, I, I think so, because I am always, like I said, nothing is for free. And yeah. he, he, even he told me, because I, I, I didn't, I don't think I wrote that, but the first time when I said, the first time I said I didn't have the money, he told me, like uh, saying from uh, Simon Bolivar, that is Venezuela's libertador, that was, he was the one that started the war against Spain. Mm-hmm. He said that Simon Bolivar said, nothing is for free. Even he told me that. The first time I told him that I didn't have the money, he told me, like Simon Bolivar said, nothing is for free. And then I think that was even more for me, like, no, 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 no. I, I don't think this is good, so I don't, I don't want it, or I don't have money. Your friend was always punctual, never late. Do you think that the old man and the little girl somehow affected your friend being late that one time and that they paused her journey to you so that this exchange could happen? I think so. I mean, there was no one car that drove by, nothing. It was only the three of us on the street. Mm. And my friend, like I said, she was never late. And it was just, we have time to talk. He had time for him to tell me everything, to promise everything. And no one car, no one that go by, do you know, there's always yeah. some, someone in, in a big city, someone, even sure. if it's one o'clock in the, in, the, uh, in the afternoon, someone's going somewhere, nobody. That was also really strange. Did it seem like he paused time or together somehow time was paused for you for this interaction? It seemed like that because it, it, it took too long and at yeah. the same time too short. You know, it's like you don't know how long time it took. <laughs> right. Right. Because we had time to talk a lot, but at the same time, it, do, it doesn't feel like it was long time. Do you know how late your friend was? Maybe 10, 15 minutes or something like that. But to you, this exchange felt longer than that. Very long. One of the other things I think you said, and I can't remember if it's in your original email or one of our exchanges or something, was that you know it would have been a mistake to marry your boyfriend of the time from university. Yes, I think so, because I am married with the guy I love and the guy yeah. that loves me and we have a beautiful family. We have two kids and I even moved to Sweden. I mean, yeah. <laughs> everybody moved to Sweden for a guy. Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yes. And uh, I mean, we don't millionaires. We don't have a lot of money, but we have enough money. We both have good jobs. We have a really good house. We have, you know, cars. We even have an apartment in Spain that we can go Ooh. and have some vacations. So, yes. Yes. We're not millionaires, but we have it. Good anyhow, so that's important, I think. I think that's the moral to this story, is that uh, you, you, as the old Rolling Stones song says, you, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, you'll find you get what you need. Yes, I think that too. Well, uh, one of my final questions here is, 
uh, about the incident with, uh, as Scott and I are calling it, the genie or the gin. (laughs) (laughs) I call it the brujo. (laughs) Brujo, brujo. Why do you think this happened to you? Do you think that there's some meaning? I don't know. And I've been asking myself the same question. Why me? Why me? Because I've never been in the mood. I don't have any family there. I don't think I look something special, you know. I don't think I'm not something extraordinary. I've been asking myself the same question. Why me? I don't know. Do you feel drawn at all to Sorte Mountain? or? No. My cousin went to, the, to Sorte after this happened to me. And I didn't tell her. When she came back, I asked her. And she tried to explain for me. And I... I it didn't feel right when she told me everything they did. And it was all this brujería, we call it, like all this, you know, fire, you were laying on the ground and they had different, uh, I don't know, it was just too strange for me. And yeah. she only got to like the first stage. So she didn't go up. So she only got to, she said, I, I didn't, we were there just a few hours and we only could do this. And she just wanted to do some cleanse it. I don't know. I don't remember. This was a long time ago. (laughs) But when she was telling me that I wasn't like, no, I don't know. I don't even want to go there. We'll provide uh, some of the links you provided us in your email on the webpage for this particular episode so people can uh, check out some very interesting things. Maria Leonza a deity figure that is connected to the mountain. Yes. And uh, it, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, so if folks want to check that out, there'll be some links there you can see on the website for this for this episode. And uh, just a side question I forgot to ask earlier. Do you think that the girl being dripping wet and appearing in your bedroom, was there anything significant about her being wet or was it just seeming like she just came from outside? Yeah, it was like she came from outside because it was raining, raining really bad, and she was just wet. <laughs> and I, in my, you know, she came from the window, like, how? Yeah. I don't even know if it was real, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And I, we live in a fifth floor, oh. so it was impossible for her to get into the apartment. Clarette, we want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, taking the time to join us and making this work, not only sending us the story, but, you know, our time zones are very different. We know it's uh, getting into the evening there. So thank you for taking some time. We're excited to share this story with our listeners. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited too. (laughs) (laughs) Out of all the stories we've received so far, there's a uniqueness to this one. And they're all extraordinary, but this one just is, uh, it really is like an astonishing legend. Yeah, I got to say, I loved how Clarette explained how time seemed to slow down and people vanished during (laughs) that event. It reminds me of the missing time stuff that we've covered on the show before when we did that episode with uh, Dan Pavenmeyer, for example. Right. To reiterate, her friend who was never late, always very punctual, somehow was late that day, but I'm not sure herself experienced missing time. So I, I do wonder how the mechanics of all that work. Yeah. How are you pulling the gears or turning the dials on that experience to to suit your ends for an encounter? I think you need the Antikythera mechanism to figure that all out. Yeah, or it could be the machinations of the Adjustment Bureau. Ah, yes. All right, folks, it is time to move on to one of our main courses tonight. A story that has multiple eyewitnesses and would seem to have maybe been a demonstration aimed at one particular person in the group. And one that had an effect on everyone there and everyone that continues to hear it. 
So from the genie to the demon, Sarah, please roll her next story. All right, folks, we would like to welcome our latest storytellers to the show who sent something in that was quite amazing to us. So we're welcoming Anna and her father, Tim, to the show. We'll start out by saying thanks for coming on. Thanks for making the time to come on, especially both of you. That's really great. Anna, tell us a little bit about uh, how long you've been listening to the show and what made you think to send this in. It is a pleasure to be on, guys. And I've been um, listening to Astonishing Legends since 2019, so I'm a fairly new follower, but I go on lots of road trips, and I also deliver for a living, so I have gone all the way back and listened to all your guys' old stuff. I'm a huge fan, and um, on your recent one, i seen that you guys were putting out for Halloween stories and scary ones, and though I have came on a public platform and told stories before, I've never told this one just because it just sounds too crazy, like something out of a horror movie, but you guys said send your scariest stuff. So I'm like, this one's too good not to tell. So I'm going to submit it in and here we are. This is one of the scariest we've heard and it's short, it's sweet, it's terrifying. It's perfect, yeah. I think, for this part three. And I know that you would think that it sounds too crazy to not be a scene from a horror movie, but yeah. you'd be surprised of all the, the bulk of stories that we've received. This is, again, one of the more terrifying ones, but the weirdness of it, the extraordinary nature. And so many witnesses on top of it, too, is what I feel like gives it a good chance of like credibility, you know? The fact that there were maybe 30 witnesses to this. Yeah. Most of these incidents that happen usually happen to individuals, maybe one or two witnesses at the time. Sometimes there's a group of people, but only one person notices. Or they experience different things. Right, exactly. In the same place, yeah. Yeah, if you would, please tell us how you first came to hear about this story from your dad. When I was probably in middle school, I became interested in just like spooky stories, paranormal things, you know, and um, I had my friends over one evening and I'm like, dad, do you have any like good spooky stories you can tell us? We, we In the spooky season, we want to hear some good stuff. And he's like, oh, I have something, but we're going to have to tell it now because I'm not going to be telling it at nighttime. He's like, it's, I can't do that. I'm like, oh, what does that mean? You know, we were all like curious and intrigued of what he meant by that. And we were all so spooked. I think one of my friends didn't even want to hear the ending of it, like the beginning of it. She's like, I'm too scared. I'm walking away. I don't want anything to do with this. And so every year um, around Halloween, I would have my dad tell this story. And what also makes it more interesting to me is that my dad's friends would even be over the friends that were at the, when the situation took place, they were there also. And they would even back my dad up and be like, oh, yeah, like, then this happened. We were all terrified. So hearing their encounters with it, too, um, just fascinated me. This story has always been a classic. Well, on, on that note, let's throw it over to your dad, Tim. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. You had said earlier that you've actually heard some of our episodes as well. Yes, sir. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. I have listened to your podcast. and. Uh, and appreciate it very much and love storytelling and hearing stories. And it's very interesting to me. So why don't you tell us the story then uh, from your own perspective, Tim? I was 21 years old and um, I'm a musician, I'm a singer. And I was asked to uh, go to this um, church camp and, and sing a, uh, a couple songs, summertime obviously in a church camp in rural Missouri, mid-Missouri. And I knew everyone there. 
So I went and um, did my thing. It was a small uh, youth camp. There was probably 50 teenagers in the room and probably five or six adults, a meaning my age and older at the time. And so the service was going as normal. And um, the uh, preacher was giving his sermon, talking to the youth about, I don't remember exactly what, I'm sure it was the normal things you would preach to kids at a youth camp. But the odd thing was we started hearing noises on the roof. And this building was new and it was kind of a split level. So you could get on the roof fairly easy. It was about a four foot jump from the ground up to the roof. So everyone assumed that um, some kids had not made it to the service, were on the roof, just being kids, you know, having fun and um, making noise, running around on the roof. The slope of the roof was not really steep, so you could climb up and down it pretty easy. So we went out, uh, another gentleman and I went outside to uh, check and see what was going on. And um, we get outside, nobody's on the roof. It's dead silent outside. No wind, no uh, nothing going on. Just creepy still. We come back in. We sat back down. The preacher kind of looked at us. and We said, there's no one on the roof. And they kind of did a head count and really didn't see anybody missing. So uh, just kind of went on with the service. And um, I'm in the back of the room sitting next to a, a, another pastor back there. I'm not a pastor. He is. But there was two pastors there preacher kept preaching and but then probably two to three minutes after restarting the service started hearing the preacher's name who's preaching being spoken out loud and it sounded like multiple voices and a young child's voice really high-pitched voice saying his name out loud you could hear three or four voices almost like it was on a speaker and almost like it was being slowed down remember the old cassette tapes when they'd get caught and they would go Mm -hmm. drag down the noise would drag down and get high again and get low again it's like it was slowing down and and uh, i could probably do an impression of it but it'd be horrible but <laughs> we'll take it if you want to try, try it, it? okay yeah. <laughs> his name was marty and it would go marty 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 you know all these different voices going on at once uh, up and down and slowing down i'm a singer like i said when you when you record things and Back then, you would slow them down to get a lower tone. You know, all those kind of, that's what it sounded like. So instantly, I'm thinking, somebody's got a speaker set up outside and they're messing with us or something, you know, playing a joke on us, kids doing something, a prank or whatever. I don't mean to butt in, but I remember one of your friends saying he remembered the different tones sounded mm. like the child was drowning almost. And so your friend's thought was, oh, my God, someone is drowning out back. Yeah, he he thought it sounded like somebody was in trouble. Yes, needing help. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I could I could see that from the sound of it, but it was specifically calling out the preacher's first name. So at that point, we got up and uh, me and this gentleman, he walked out in front of me, and when he opened up the doors, I'm a country boy, so I I, I explain it the way I know things. If you've ever been turkey hunting or walking through the woods at night and you jump turkeys off the roost on a tree when they take off, that flapping of the wings, that loud rustle, that's what it sounded like. It sounded like there were 20 turkeys in a tree right above the church and they took off flying because we opened the door. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You can also hear the same sound effect in movies when bats come flying out of a cave. Yeah. Jumping a cubby quail. You ever had done that out in the, out in the woods or at night or in a field? Um, 
It's a pretty distinct noise. And I remember it well that night, what it sounded like. So that sound was loud. And sometimes I describe it even sunk a helicopter was taking off. You know, mm-hmm. it was loud. And we're all looking around, gazing around. At this point, the service stopped and there were people coming out to see what the noise was. And off to our right, down the hill, there's a swimming pool. And this is, I'm telling you, rural America, this is, there's nothing around this place. It's off by itself. The lights were on in the pool area, and they were just a couple lights, and they were dim, you know, but you could obviously see the pool. And the swimming pool, water, the best way to describe it was shaking, like there had been an earthquake or tsunami or whatever, and the water was waving up and down inside this pool. And the pool, I'm going to guess, was probably only... 20 by 20. You know, it wasn't a big elaborate swimming pool. It was a little country swimming pool. And the water was uh, violently surging back and forth, making waves, splashing against the side. Well, I, I remember seeing the water hitting the sides of the pool and splashing up on the sidewalks. So it was splashing and we're just like, kind of like uh, not really knowing what we're looking at, you know. And then I remember a person saying, look at the lifeguard stand. And at that moment, I focused in on the lifeguard stand, which I had to step to the left a little bit and look around the building, and there it was on the lifeguard stand. Um, And this is the part that makes me sound like I'm crazy, but hey, it happened. I've seen it. It is what it is. What I was looking at, the best way to describe was, if you can imagine a fullback in the NFL, going, you know, 260, 280, solid muscle, setting in the lifeguard stand, almost like the thinker, when you think of the statue of the thinker, mm-hmm. setting similar to that. The color of it was, um, you remember the movie Signs? Yeah, absolutely. Remember when um, the first time you seen that alien walking by in that scene, yeah. the little kids running around the room? Yes. Yes. That smoky figure? His skin was like smoke, black, gray, dark gray, charcoal, smoky looking. The texture of this being. But the thing that really sticks out is, here we go. The head of this thing was cat-like. When I say cat-like, it had ears um, like a cat. And um, I couldn't see what else to see at whiskers, but... Um, the face of it uh, had a big brow, but it had ears like a cat, and it uh, was not happy. And it was um, looking around, turning its head left to right, right to left, back and forth, looking like it was searching for something, looking for something. And the gentleman, the pastor who had walked out in front of me, told us all to stay back, and he started walking towards it. And I later did question him about what he was saying because at the time I really wasn't paying attention. I was just watching the whole thing unfold. But what he was saying was there are names of God in the Bible. And there's an old song called The Lily of the Valley. Have you ever heard that song before? Yes, long time ago. Lily of the Valley is a song that basically states the names of God in the Bible. The bright morning star, the lion of the tribe of Judah, all those things. And he was walking towards it, shouting out the names of God demanding this thing leave. This whole scenario, from the moment I seen it till it was gone, lasted maybe 45 seconds, 
He walked down there seeing these names, yelling at it. You could tell it focused its attention on him as he was walking towards it. Never heard much rumblings coming from it because it was too chaotic. He was screaming at it. And within the blink of an eye, it faded and disappeared and the water went perfectly still. We all looked at each other and stunned, shocked. A lot of people were screaming, some were crying. We uh, went back into the church and they had prayer and talked about it. And some people are actually in denial already at that point, but they had seen others of us uh, sit up and talked about it all night. And um, repercussions from it were a lot of people, again, acted like nothing happened. And uh, several of us um, still talk about it today. When you say, cat-like. What kind of cat? A house cat? A lion? Could you describe more of the shape of this cat head and how large was it? Like a cougar type head and the head would be uh, much larger. Like uh, it was a full size, a big man head. Does that make sense? With cat features. Distinct brow on the top. Probably your typical black cat, I would imagine, but on like a bigger scale. That's a good description. The, but the ears were prevalent. They were big, like oversized. Norm, not normal cat ear, but a big, like for the human ear is wider, but going straight up like a cat. Mm. After you guys came out to look at it, beyond when you first heard it calling Marty's name from when you were inside, when you came out, you didn't hear it do any other speaking of any kind. It was all Marty as he was approaching and dealing with it. He was speaking, but it was not speaking. Right. Uh, you know, I've tried, I've thought of that before. If anything, maybe some grunting, but I can't remember exactly. But there was no word spoken, no. How old were you at this time, Tim? 21. Uh, what year was this? 1986. And how close did you get to it before it disappeared? I would say I was um, 30 yards away. I remember my father's friend also saying he remembered, he stood back with the crowd but he said he remembered its mouth was open and the voices were still coming out of its mouth. But the moment he started reciting the lily in the valley, the prayer in it, um, it stopped and no vocals came out of its mouth, but the mouth was still open, if that makes sense. It was behind me up the hill. I was walking halfway between Marty and the, and the uh, entity there. Right. You must have to be in, everybody's probably in high levels of shock. So everyone's, yeah. you're focused on different details or whatever, something standing at, because you're, you're also trying to process what you're seeing. Yeah. Yes. Correct. It was a lot. No doubt. It's now occurring to me, possibly a feeling. I always ask people, I, I know it's hard to fathom or, or you may not have any impression, but what, what the purpose of this encounter was. A lot of people will actually say that they believe that there was a reason this happened, that they were shown this, or that there was a motive or something, even if it was just that I was meant to see this. There's no reason for it, but I was supposed to see this, whatever this happened. And it's not something you can share with everyone, of course. But when the the initial sound of all the dozens and dozens of small feet, it sounded like our footsteps running across the roof, and then you go outside, or at least you start hearing multiple voices in different pitches and tones at different speeds. It just brought to mind this passage that we've often talked about on the show before, and I believe it comes from uh, Mark chapter 
5, verse 10 of the uh, the New Testament, and it is when Jesus encounters the unclean spirits in the man who could not be bound, and he asks, tell me your name, what is your name? And the man, or the spirits in the man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And it makes me think that uh, we've heard this in different contexts before, where there are a lot of spirits bound up with one larger, controlling, more powerful force that is getting these things to do its bidding or has bound them up to uh, for the power of it. Do you have any inkling, like, what was going on? Like, what was the purpose of this? What was it? Why did this happen? Yeah. Um, how deep we going? Um, <laughs> as deep as you'd like to, <laughs> as you're comfortable with. At the time, there were two pastors there. You know, I don't know if there was competition in pastors, but um, it seemed that they were at odds with each other about how they believed about things like this, about how much influence the dark world, the satanic world has over people and how much power a Christian has over that world. And they'd had several debates and discussions about it before, which I had witnessed and heard on several occasions. And we're kind of at odds with each other about this whole uh, genre, type of events, things that happen in life. You know, one bleed, one didn't. And I believe it was that uh, friction between them two and kind of the I'll show you thing. You know, that's my best reason why it happened. So there was a message then that might have been aimed at them. Yeah, at one particular, yes. Okay. It may, of course, vary by denomination, various church uh, beliefs, and you'll hear a lot of people who do ghost hunting. And uh, there's two of these ghost hunters we've come to know a little bit. They call themselves the the Haunted Housewives. And uh, (laughs) Kathy and uh, Teresa, I believe, they have said, you know, when they go to church and people find out what they do, they get a lot of flack for it. It's like, well, you know, you shouldn't be dabbling in this. It's necromancy. It's this and that. Also, ghosts don't exist. People die. Their spirit goes to heaven. They're not wandering around. They have very firm beliefs in this and that uh, you don't know what you're communing with. And maybe that's the case, but people are entitled, of course, to their beliefs by denomination. But we've heard a lot that there are uh, a lot of major ones here in the U.S. especially that don't put any stock in that. And then, uh, like you said, with the trickster element or the prankster is that, oh, yeah, well, get a load of this. Yeah. What do you think of this then? And then, you, like you said, the reactions you described, that really kind of hit home to me because it's like with everything that we talk about on the show. Some people totally deny it. They scoff, roll their eyes. And everyone then has to, at that point, decide, well, now what do you believe? Oh, you think this is all fake? Well, what about this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, to the person who is uh, not a believer, and in front of these very people had had told them it didn't exist and they had power over it, which they do, but that it don't exist and try to make the other guy look like he was crazy. It kind of ended that whole uh, discussion from that point <laughs> forward. And um, um, there were some people there that ended up getting help for some things they were dealing with because they were open to the fact that um, that world does exist. Evil does exist. Yeah. It does cause trauma and there's ways to prevent it from happening. So aside from your, you know, your friends that have been around and Anna, that you've obviously witnessed that, that we're all part of this, 
Is this also part of local lore in the town where this happened? Is, is it is word out about it, or is it just has it been kept within the group that was there? It's been pretty much kept within the group. I've never heard. I uh, haven't heard anyone outside of it talk about it either. The friend group yeah, that was there. Yeah, yeah, I'm shocked as well. It never really uh, got yeah. talked about a lot. But you know, when things happen at a at a church camp like that, it's nothing you want to advertise for sure. <laughs> Right. Right. Come to church camp and get the crap scared out of you. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so I would ask uh, on behalf of the skeptics that will listen to this, a lot sure. of times camps, summer camps, camps are, it's all about pranks. Let's go on the snipe hunt. Let's go right. do this and that and the other. Right. Uh, you could see somebody, are, were they staging this to reinforce mm-hmm. the faith of the people that were there? But even if they were, how would they pull off this thing disappearing in front of your eyes, I guess? I mean, what would you say to folks that say, oh, you were just, you were overwhelmed and it was a staged situation? Right. You know, that's, that's awesome. That's how I would think, too. Because I, my friends, helped write the book on summertime pranks at church camp. <laughs> <laughs> so I have pulled off some glorious moments with a lot of thought and detail in some of the stuff I've pulled off. There are a few legends out there about the stuff we did. How did we take the church bell down and throw it in that very pool one time when I was, you know, 13 years old? Okay. Never heard that one. (laughs) No. Well, honestly, like I said, I don't know if I said it before, but when when this whole thing first started, I thought, well, if some kid is up their game with the speaker deal and running this audio this well, you know, with a sound system somehow outside, that was my first thought. I'm always skeptical when I hear things too, because, you know, I just am. I thought somebody was pulling one on us and they were doing a great job to the point of when I seen the pool. Yeah. When I seen what was going on with the water. Yeah. I feel like that's hard to explain away. And then when I gazed up and seen what I seen setting on that lifeguard stand, you can't take that away. And then, you know, somebody don't want to believe it. That's fine. And you need to get that. You absolutely have that right to be skeptical. And I, I fight to defend that. Right. But I see what I see. I can't unsee it. It is what it is. I am the world's biggest Bigfoot cheerleader. I would love to see a Squatch, but until I see one, I probably won't believe it. You know, I get it. He literally has a Bigfoot statue um, in his driveway. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And I got every shirt you could buy and had <laughs> decals on my music equipment. And I want to believe so bad, but you know, no, I do believe the people at CM and say they believe it, but I, until I see it, I won't believe it. So I get the skeptic thing. Right. That's fine. Uh, was this pool an in-ground pool? Yes, it had a deep end. What you have described, though, is, is that uh, the physics are impossible for somebody pulling yes. off a prank. Yeah, one, you've got to get the uh, the water to slosh. And certainly down here in Southern California, we've seen an earthquake slosh water like that. It takes a great amount of force to get the whole pool to move. The other thing is that once it evaporated, the water almost immediately turned calm, right? It just it is flattened out. Yeah. It's not three kids in a big, long trench coat wearing a can helmet, you know, can head, because right. this thing turned to black smoke and evaporated before your, everyone's eyes, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean. And it was also 1985, so it's not like people had, like, the technology to pull anything mm-hmm. off with holograms or whatever, you know. Well, especially where we, we were, you know, we're, we're talking, when I say rule, yeah. you, you don't see no lights, like, at night anywhere. You're, you're isolated. so. You'd have to have a really tough special effects person to work <laughs> some magic to make it happen. Right, right. I guess it's possible, but I don't know how. And for this small group just to, like yeah, I said, the, the skeptics point? to say, well, just to reinforce the faith. 
that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me uh, in this setting anyway. All right. Speaking of 1986, when this happened, what has transpired over the the years, the decades since then with all the people and who witnessed this? And has anything else you've heard of strange happening with anyone associated with this? Just the gentleman uh, who was involved with paranormal uh, happenings mm-hmm. before this happened and, and after he had several more things uh, happen that was witnessed. I didn't, uh, but other people had kind of followed him around and um, he has since passed many years ago, but um, since then, nothing that I know of. What kinds of things were happening to him? I don't like to use this word because it sounds almost like fantasy nowadays almost, but wasn't he kind of an exorcist? basically then he'd play around like did this like cleansings and whatnot and like he was in some pretty serious ones exorcisms um yes demonic exorcisms was one of his things um he was involved in a situation this coming from other pastors who were with him i wasn't there and i'm getting that a pastor Mm -hmm. they're friends of mine that um they were praying and uh, on top of a hillside and um, literally, how would you describe it other than fire was falling from the sky, light was coming down and lighting up on the ground. It wasn't fire, actually, just light. They freaked out and left. And um, they kind of disassociated themselves with this gentleman after that, and um, he moved on. That was one of the last things that had happened, I know of. So it seems like something was likely connected to this individual yeah. in yes. some way. Can't prove that either, but... Yeah. Right. How has it affected your faith personally for you since this happened? Uh, where are you at now with this in, in the background of your life? You know, as I get older, and by the year, you know, I'm in my latter 50s, I, I have realized and learned that the older we get, the less we really know. It almost seems like, you know, you're taught these things when you're young, up in a box and as you get older you realize there's a lot more to this thing than what we see and i think when we're done we're all going to be in for a huge surprise my faith i mean i have my faith i'm i'm a christian i'm i'm still strong on my faith it's just i'm it did open my eyes up a little bit yeah to the fact that there's things going on in this world and in the world around us that we cannot even come close to comprehending understanding or are uh, knowing what it is and to think we can to think we know it all is foolish that's my opinion well that's one of those stories that you think nah but then when you hear somebody like tim tell it it sounds pretty convincing. I want to remind folks that when we conducted most of these interviews, we were on camera just so we could interact with folks, even though we only recorded the audio. So we could see our guests and read their body language and how they're telling their story. And And Tim came off as exceptionally honest and believing. And I would say, if anything, he's still trying to figure out what happened that day all those years ago. Yeah. And as we said in part one, we're not here to pick these apart after they're done. First of all, what's the fun in that? However, on the other hand, it's human nature. As I've already read some accounts where people are like really trying to explain everything away very easily and in a way that just uh, doesn't take into account all of the details. So it's a little like how we started off with tonight's quote. 
don't tell me what I saw. You weren't there, but that's not going to stop people because they will tell you what you saw. And they're yes. going to explain that rationally away, very simply. It was just this. You were young. Your testimony is incorrect. You don't know what you saw. The other thing is that this was fairly recent. A lot of these cases that we read, there was one that happened just a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. so it's not just from childhood you're misremembering or uh, somebody just sleepwalks. That's why we like this round of stories is that they're all different. It's not just you wake up to something. Certainly that happens a lot. And it happens in your bedroom, I think, because my theory is that that's where you're most vulnerable. But it's also sometimes just out in nature, just doing its own thing. And unfortunately, your paths cross. And with that, we come to the last story of the night and the last story of this series. We'll be going out on this one, folks. So we'd like to go ahead and thank you now for joining us and riding these three episodes out to the end. You are the brave ones. Yeah. Well, we put a great deal of effort into these episodes and had a great time doing it, but it wouldn't have been possible if so many of you hadn't sent so much great material that is your life experience, essentially. And as we said at the top of the show, a great deal of you will still be hearing from us in the future because even though these shows are done, we'd like to record a lot more of you for future appearances. But in the meanwhile, as you try to wrap your head around all of these encounters tonight, we're going to share one of the most disturbing ones we've received. It's not just disturbing on its face, but it's also because Mark, who tells it, doesn't even seem to realize what he was dealing with. But as the story unfolds, he starts to do a little research, and it turns out he may have encountered something that's been well known to many cultures for a long time. Sarah, please roll the story of the creature in the corn. All right, folks, we'd like to welcome Mark to our show. Mark sent in one of the more prominent stories for us. It, it really jumped out at us when we got it, and we wanted to talk to him, and we were thrilled to catch up with him and get this story straight from him, because he personally experienced it, and, and get it recorded. So, Mark, say hello to our listeners. Maybe tell them a little bit about yourself. Uh, then we'll, we'll start talking about what happened here. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm Mark. Uh, I'm from, like, northern Alberta, rancher by trade, doing some schooling to maybe get a little more than that. Been enjoying living on the farm for my whole life, and yeah. You know, it's funny, when we were going back to find your story, I found an email from you in May <laughs> of 2020, which we uh, were thrilled to get, by the way, but you're correcting us, uh, as many people should and do, about uh, how we had not been, we'd been saying birthing season, and you explained that for cattle, it was calving season, and for sheep, it's lambing season. So <laughs> it was nice to know that. Everything I know about farming, I, I learned from watching uh, Jeremy Clarkson's farm It show. is a great we're, show. <laughs> <laughs> that was really eye-opening. I loved yeah. it. I'm so glad it's coming back for a second season, actually. What was that in reference to? Do you remember uh, what we were talking about? I think it was the cattle mutilation stories mm, okay. um, and you're talking mm -hmm. about moving around the cattle for birthing season and just kind right. of caught my ear wrong so just sent right. an email <laughs> well we appreciate that it wasn't quite as jarring as the next email you sent <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but just for our, our, our listeners here you're talking uh you're in a region that is northwest of edmonton in the province of alberta canada yeah it gets pretty cold it's beautiful country by the way yeah but it can get uh it can get pretty rough weather-wise, and I think in the backdrop in this story, you were doing a lot of fence checks on horseback because I think it was a low corn harvest this year. Yeah, so kind of I was, it was 2019, it was fertilizer, it was super expensive, bad weather. 
Anyways, uh, essentially what it was is we saw that something was going into our corn. We used that to feed our cattle and feed was going to be very expensive. So we were wanting to make sure we had a good harvest and we could see something coming in and out of, we're on the edge of, it's called crown land. I don't know if you have it in the States. Essentially it's forest owned by the government that will often border up against big farms, especially kind of where I am, just because... Uh, there's lots of forests. We're close to Jasper. We're close to Banff, that kind of stuff. So, And how, how large is this farm that you're on? So we have 640 acres that we farm. Wow, that's big, right? So how, how many people work there? Uh, so it's mostly our family. Uh, we do a lot of this stuff during uh, the Lent calving season. We'll bring people in because we, we have, it's called a cow-calf operation. So we raise the cows, we bring bulls in to breed them. Then they calve out in the spring raise the calves for the year, sell them at the end of the year to something like a feedlot that'll feed them up for sale. It sounds like hard work. Yeah, it keeps me busy, that's for sure. <laughs> so when you said you saw something going in and out of the corn initially, you were seeing the, the trails it was leaving, not the thing itself. Yeah, so we were doing fence checks uh, just out riding, and I saw that there was trails going into the corn and coming back out. So... Obviously, that's something I want to check up on. So checked it out a little bit. And it looked like the, whatever was walking in and out wasn't actually eating anything. So that kind of raises the heckles because that's a predator. It's not going in there to eat. It's going into there to sleep, then going back out to the crown line to hunt. So my first thought was bear, maybe mountain lion. We have mountain lions in the area. So wanted to make sure that it was, we kept an eye on the area because mountain lion can take down a cow. And as my source of livelihood, we want to keep as many of those around as we can. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. What's your next steps? When you, when you realize that it's a possible predator, what steps do you take next to protect the farm and the cattle? So what we did is kind of told everybody what was happening just so people could keep an eye out for anything around the animals. And then I camped out. We have a, we have a tree blind. So set up the tree blind and spent a couple nights out there. After work, I'd go out settle down in the blind and just kind of wait, see if anything happened and didn't see anything. But you knew this was a, v- a very large animal. And first of all, it's not going to be a moose or elk, or like I said, something that's a herbivore. Something is not eating the feed. It's just going there to, I guess, get shelter from the tall corn this time of year and and basically bed down there for the night as shelter. Yeah, that's at least the read I was getting off of it. Yeah. There yeah. might be people who know more that would disagree but that was just kind of my read being in the situation yeah right right probably nobody knows your land in the area better than than you and your family does but i i found this uh, interesting this is pretty typical at least uh, with my family that used to do ranching and farming is that you would ride the fences but you you come armed so uh, i noticed that your note here says that you first carried a winchester rifle m70 that uh, fires the the 338 is that the uh, the lopua round not quite, no. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, but it's big enough that you can pretty much take down anything that's in the area. And you had hunted with it before, so you're out there basically with the intention that you need to stop this predator before it does take down either uh, some cattle or a human. Yeah, so we're we're pretty close to the Rockies, which is in between BC and Alberta. And there's lots of wildlife that lives in there. And a friend of mine had lost a cow to a cougar uh, earlier in the year. So 
it was kind of high alert in the area for something like that, at least. So I was wanting to keep an eye out for sure. Yeah. What happens next is basically you didn't get any luck or didn't see anything. And uh, then you started carrying your shotgun loaded with a 12 gauge slug. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot lighter than my rifle is. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that whatever it is can shoot it. Or if there's just kind of more of a security thing than a hunting thing, because you don't want to be trying to hunt something with that necessarily, but something's coming at you, it'll stop whatever's coming at you. How long did this play out? What happened next when you, I mean, how many days did it take to try and track this thing down? I think it was a couple of weeks, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that I was camping out there every night, but saw this and then was keeping an eye out. And yeah, I spent a couple nights on the tree stand watching for animals, but didn't see anything. What about the night that you actually heard something? Let's talk about that. Yeah, so I was doing uh, herd checks. So since we have quite a bit of land, it's a lot easier to do them on horseback. So I was on my horse and I heard something. Uh, What I heard was a, uh, a mountain lion. That's what I thought at least. So if you haven't ever heard a mountain lion before, it essentially sounds like somebody's getting murdered. Like it's just a scream. Whatever you hear, it just sends a chill down your spine. And I heard that coming from the corn where I'd seen something before. So I took my horse, Duke. We rode over, went to the fence line, because there's our pastures with the cattle, fence line, and then the corn. And it's both of those run up against the crown land. So kind of went to the corner of the pasture. I tied a loose knot. Essentially, Duke, if I, he's drop lead trained. So if I drop the lead, he'll act as if he's tied. But I didn't want him wandering off. I have to hike back to the house. So (laughs) I uh, kind of wrapped it around the pole loosely in case whatever was in there came out and attacked him. I didn't want him tied up and getting hurt. So loose tied him. And then I hopped over the fence into the crowd land. I was walking through the forest and it was kind of, I, the time I thought it was nerves, probably was, might have been something else, but I could feel, it felt like it was getting colder. It was pretty hot still. We were getting up to, well, depends on the season, but it was hot for fall. Right. It was like 20 Celsius. And so I was hiking over and was checking the corn to see if I could see anything. And as I was going, I saw a trail that was cut through the corn there. So I thought, this is it. I found it. Whatever's going in, this is, it's still in there. So um, as I started getting closer, it sounded like a kind of a whimper of an animal. So in my mind, it was like, oh, there's a mountain lion in here. And it was in a fight with another mountain lion for territory. It happens. And the one thing I don't understand to this day is why I decided to go in. Even if it was a mountain lion, it's not Mm. a good idea to go in there. Right. So I hopped the fence and I started going down. And again, it was, I don't know if you guys have ever had this, but it's when you know you're in something else's territory. Mm -hmm. Like this was my farm, but this was this animal's territory. And it was in charge around here. They don't pay attention to fence lines. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever this was, was it hopping your fence line from the Crown Territory? So it looked like it was, like our fence was still intact there. Things can squeeze through and stuff like that. It's around the corn, so it's mainly mm-hmm. to keep cattle out. Um, so we don't have to have too tight offenses for those girls. But yeah, so I was just going down this trail and 
I was kind of curved as I was walking. I had this instinct. It was like, like people talk about fight or flight in dangerous situations. This was like all of a sudden a rabbit realized there was a coyote. And my mind was just like, you're in danger right now. And as I was walking, I saw something stand up out of the corn. Whatever it was, was taller than our corn at the time, which was about six feet tall. It was over the corn. It was thin. It looked like a, like I've hunted bear. I know what a bear looks like, but it was too thin. Um, It was tall and I could see its head. I didn't get a good look at it because it was getting close to dusk rather. So I couldn't get a good look at it, but I did see its outline and I saw the the bear eyes, but what immediately caught me was its eyes. Like I said, I've hunted before. I know what animals look like. I deal with cows all the time, Uh, but the eyes just seemed, they didn't seem like completely a bear. I don't know if that makes sense. It kind of, when you look in an animal's eyes, you can see intelligence. Right, right. And this thing was intelligent. It had the intelligence of human eyes. And it looked at me and before I could really even figure out what was happening out of instinct, I rose my gun and shot it. And I could see it, I hit its shoulder, but it didn't even flinch. This is a 12-gauge slug. Like, it's meant to take down anything that gets within 30 feet yet. Like, that thing's stopping mm-hmm. a bear, that thing's stopping a moose. But this thing barely even flinched. I made a sound. I didn't know I could make this sound. It was between a scream and a growl. It was like the animal inside of me was just yelling for it to get away from me. And then I ran. Uh, (laughs) I booked it out of the court and I could hear whatever it was was behind me and keeping pace. Jumped the fence, I started running and I ran straight to Duke. I knew where I'd tied him up, I knew he was there. And he was concerned, he was freaking out as well. When you work with an animal like that, you kind of get to know each other well. And I could tell he was panicking just as much as I was. He could hear whatever was coming as well. So I hopped on Duke and rode back to the house. I didn't even I didn't even look back because I didn't want to see how close it was to me. I didn't want to know if this thing was keeping pace with me or just about to catch up with me or falling behind. I just knew I needed to get behind the locked door. So I made it back. I actually rode Duke inside. My dad was pretty pissed. So essentially our family farm, we have a house on it and everybody else was gone for the day and it was just me and my dad at the farm making sure everything wrapped up. We were going to go later on. That didn't end up happening. So I I came in and I rode him inside and my dad was yelling at me and I just looked at him and I said, something's hunting me. That's all you need to know right now. Something's hunting me. Duke can't be outside. I can't be outside. We need to lock the door. You need to get your gun and we need to wait at the windows. My dad heard the panic in my voice, grabbed his gun, and we waited by the window. And as we waited, I was explaining what was happening, and we saw something running on the kind of the art. It's a hill down to our house, and we could see something just over the crest of our hill moving back and forth and popping out. And we just watched it, and we sat there for probably eight hours, just... Not a word between us. Yeah, luckily they were out of town, the rest of my family. When the sun came up, we didn't see anything else. It was 
My dad, he said he believed me. He said, obviously you saw something. We saw something chase you here. But he said, don't tell people about this. You don't want to be the town crazy. You don't want to be the guy who saw Bigfoot or something like that. So we ended up calling my family, said we had a cow go down that needed some help. We spent the night helping it. And we left the next day. I, <laughs> I was quite happy to leave. When you followed the path into the corn where it was, how long a walk was that? It was, felt very quick going in and very long coming out of it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It probably maximum like 120, 150 feet. Okay. When you, you shot it and you saw the impact of the slug, right? Yeah. So you know that you hit it. What was happening in that moment? So it was it was looking at me, and I was kind of making eye contact, essentially. And when I hit it, that was when my body was like, this thing's going to hurt you. You need to leave. Like, you need to get out. You need to run. You need to leave as fast as possible. So I don't know if that was kind of what if it was something in its eyes that kind of communicated that, or if it was just kind of instinct at that point. And it was bipedal. Yeah, whatever it was, it stood up. And like when I heard it running, I mean, obviously I'm not an expert with noise and animals and everything like that, but I've spent enough time around animals to know what a four-legged animal sounds like. And I know what it sounds like when a cow's walking, when a human's walking, when a bear's walking, and it would sound like it would switch. Like it would be on four legs and then it would be on two legs and then four legs and then two legs. I, I don't know if that's what was happening behind me because I didn't want to look, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what my ears told me at least. You know, you seem uh, a little bit cagey about saying specifically what you thought it might've been, you know, it's had sort of human eyes, but a bare head like, do you feel like it was something related to the idea of Sasquatch or Bigfoot or something entirely different, something otherworldly? What, you know, what, what do you think it might have been? So I'm in a couple schools of thought here. <laughs> There's this earth answer, the nothing out of the ordinary, just a freak encounter that what I found was a starving bear, that it was maybe sick, maybe infected with something, And that's what I saw. It stood up. It was very thin. That's just because a bear gets thin when it's sick. It chased me because it was hungry. It circled the house, but didn't get close because it was knew what humans were and knew what guns were. But it just doesn't connect all the dots for me. Like, why did it not even look phased when I hit it with a shotgun? Why did it, yeah, not come up to the house? If it's a hungry bear, it's going to do something. And why didn't it kill any of our cattle? Or why didn't it go for... Anything in, on the fire, why was it just going into the fields? And So there's that. The other one is something like Bigfoot. There's lots of different stories. I mean, I could tell you hundreds of campfire stories about what's up in uh, the boonies of Alberta there. Or the one thing that I heard that ticked boxes for me was something like a, like a Wendigoon. Something like that where it's sort of an animal but it's Mm -hmm. not it's something that's different and twisted that was just i mean kind of recounting what happened that was what i felt from it was that was not supposed to be there whatever it was did you find any remains in the in the corn 
where it had been? Yeah, so I went back about a week later. I had to build the nerve up to it, but ended up going back when it was sunny. Didn't find anything, no. And so no no sign of a, a struggle with like it, it like it was had hunted and caught something or nothing left behind. No, nothing. And then it le- then it didn't come back. I've I've never seen anything like that since. We still on our farm now. We now all carry firearms with us whenever we go out. We used to just kind of be like if you're uh, going close to Crown Land or if there's something in the area, carry a firearm. But pushed that into common practice and my dad didn't fight it much. He's the one that makes most of the calls around the farm. So it's just kind of an unspoken thing that now we carry firearms with us because I don't want somebody catching something like that off guard again. I think this, it's the second thing you you said and maybe the most outrageous uh, theory of what this might have been, but I think it's making the most sense when you take a look at the description of what you saw. And just to clarify for the audience here, so as this thing popped up over the corn, this thing is going to be seven, eight feet tall, maybe at least a couple of feet over, over six feet uh, yeah. tall corn to set the scene here. The sun's going down, but you can still get a, there's still enough light for you to get a lot of detail, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you see this thing, what you had described in your email was that you heard an animalistic whimper that was more feline. That was a a whine or like a, a cougar that was injured or fighting. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you actually saw this thing's head, the way you described it, well, first of all, this thing has arms and this thing, as you said, it, it was thin, nearly unnaturally so. And you swear you saw bone trying to poke through the skin. It was that skinny. Yeah, like I could see, it looked like it was more skin clinging to bone than it was to muscle. Like I could see its hips, I could see its shoulders. Yeah. Wow. Were its back legs canine in structure or human? They were thick, like a like a bear's legs. With normal knees, like a person would have knees, like the front facing knee. I didn't get too good of a look at it, but yeah, I think so. <laughs> Nothing stands out right. like it had like ost- like the back facing legs or anything. Right. Like that's that. what I was yeah. wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The part that did seem healthy or thickest is, as you said, it, it had this large head on a thick, furry neck that was a bear-shaped head. Yeah. But more with human-like eyes or a combination, as you said, a hybrid between a, a man's head and a bear's head? I don't really know how to describe it properly. I don't really have good words for it. But it was right. like when I looked at its eyes, I could see that it hated me. I've had encounters with animals before i know what a scared animal looks like i know what yeah. a panicked animal looks like it looked like it hated me I, did, I just don't know how to describe it any other way that's not an uncommon description from all the stories that uh, we've <laughs> presented so far and the ones we've received that's a very common thing and at this point the last thing you said as far as the description is that it had a thick neck with mottled colored fur can you describe the color of the fur or what the fur was like yeah the fur was caught my attention enough that I remembered it. It was just what looked like it was not patchy is not the right word. Right. It looked like it was getting thin and it was kind of just what looked like it was enough fur for a small bear stretched over a big bear, if that makes sense. Like it just looked yeah. very thin. And yeah, it was a brown color. I mean, we have grizzlies in the area. So that's right. kind of the connection that I made was that it was a uh, sick grizzly. But yeah, it was kind of grizzly color. Um, with yeah, it just looked like not enough skin stretched over too much bear. (laughs) Why do you think it didn't catch you? 
that is honestly one of my biggest questions about the whole encounter. Because not only did it keep pace with me when I was running, but it felt like it was keeping pace with me when I was on horseback. Mm. So I don't know if it was just like, I'll get this guy, I'll chase him down eventually. And then I was on horseback and it's like, oh, I actually have to try now. Or if I caught it off guard, it wasn't expecting to have to run. How fast can you get on Duke? Like, I mean, you're running out, you've got to jump a fence, one fence at least, right? Yeah. And then get on Duke and and hightail it, which is the origin of that is from horses running. So like, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the panic moment. If this was a movie, that moment where you're trying to untie Duke and get on there and get the hell out of Dodge, that seems like that would be the moment when I would need a diaper, I think. Looking back, I kind of laugh because that's where people would have died in horror movies is they would have probably tied up their horse. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Or the, you know, Duke takes off. As you said, his ears were back. He could also sense that there was a dangerous predator animal. Yeah, and that was that was one of the things that my dad kind of picked up on. That was something yeah. was going wrong. As I came in and Duke was dead tired. He had ran full sprint across one of our full fields and Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fully within the capabilities of a horse, but you never really want to push them that hard. Horses will run themselves to death if you push them too hard. How far was that? So it was, I was running across a quarter section. Uh-huh. So that's a quarter of a mile because a section is a mile by a mile square. That's mm-hmm. how a lot of the land out here is cut up is it came through with surveyors, put everything in sections. So we kind of go by quarter sections. So it would have right. been a quarter of a mile. And you went like, do you have to go up some steps to get into the house? Yeah. So we have a little, uh, it's like three steps to the porch kind of thing. Nothing too crazy, but. Did you ride him all the way in or like get off him at the porch and, and lead him in or? I essentially rode him in. Yeah. We, I mean, our door, it's the farm door. We don't really keep it closed too often. Right. So it doesn't, right. doesn't close properly. But yeah, so I kicked the door as we got closer and then just kind of rode him in, ducked out to the door. Yeah. Well, a couple of things that you had mentioned, Mark, in your email really stood out to me. And one is that I immediately thought of another connection of of another interesting encounter that uh, has some similarities to it. I don't know if you've ever heard our Skinwalker Ranch series. I have, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you may remember that when the family that bought that ranch, the Sherman family, a few days after they had arrived and started setting things up, had an encounter with a extremely large wolf, as they called it. And uh, it was a very odd encounter in that it wasn't, it didn't seem to be afraid of them. It kind of walked up and I think they were all kind of just standing there in amazement. And as this thing is watching and it does, first of all, the eyes, as you described your creature, I remember them describing it as having a almost hypnotic presence and that where they were just like so amazed that this thing would walk up to them and also how massive it was. And then as they're all watching, it makes a grab for one of the calves that had stuck its snout through the, Hmm. through the fence. And at that point, their rancher's instinct kicked in. And I believe Terry Sherman, he shot it a few times with a 357 Magnum and it didn't have much effect Okay, so that's one similarity. They claim that a chunk, a big chunk of flesh had come off. Although the the wolf or whatever it was didn't seem to react too much, it just kind of eventually, I think, sauntered off before they could grab the uh, .30-06. And they said that chunk of flesh smelled like death, like it was rotting flesh. Yeah. And one thing you said here from your emails that it smelled bad, like death, really. 
you smelled it first, and that's what made your heckles rise. Yeah, so yeah, like kind of thinking back on it, that's what originally kind of raised the heckles on my neck when I was going through the cord there. So I smelt that. Yeah, it was like that also helped feed the narrative of, okay, this animal's wounded. Maybe it had something really gangrenous on it or something like that that I could smell. But yeah, I just, yeah, I could smell it. Right. You sensed, and this is really very common now from all the stories we've heard about, let's say, unnatural beings or even supernatural beings, is that you sensed deep hatred coming from it, that it wasn't just a territorial thing. This thing hated you. Yeah. Of course, what I'm uh, heading towards here is something you mentioned, and you may have a slightly different regional uh, word for this, but we've talked about this being before uh, the show, the Wendigo, or Wendigo, however however you want to put the accent here. Yeah, that's what he said a minute ago. Right, and just looking at the very generalized Wikipedia description here, it is described as a mythological creature or evil spirit originating from the folklore of Plains and Great Lakes natives, as well as some First Nations. It is based in and around the East Coast forests of Canada. You are more, with Alberta, you're more left of uh, center if you're looking straight at the, uh, yeah, the map yeah. there. <laughs> right. So, but again, uh, there's no borders or fences with these things. And so it, it pops up, but here's a curious description here, sentence. It's often said to be a malevolent spirit, sometimes depicted as a creature with human-like characteristics, which possesses human beings. The Wendigo is said to invoke feelings of insatiable greed slash hunger, desire to cannibalize other humans, propensity to commit murder in those that fall under its influence. But listen to the physical description. It's often described as a giant humanoid with the heart of ice, a foul stench, or sudden unseasonable chill might precede its approach. Mm. Maybe something close to a werewolf or a human-beast hybrid. In this case, though, you did feel kind of a chill as you approached the area. Yeah, that was just kind of looking back on it. I was like, was that related? Because on one hand, when you get nervous, you kind of focus in, you kind of block that stuff out. And sometimes you'll feel something like that. But yeah, I was looking back on it. I was like, oh, like, was that related or is that just? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I guess the other similarity here is the foul stench and a sense of hatred or malintent. So to you, I guess you are leaning towards, uh, feel free to get woo-woo with this, but (laughs) if you're going to go to the other end of the spectrum where it was something uh, very unnatural, supernatural, is that the closest description you've heard of of any creature you've, you've come across or heard about? Yeah, so I mean, like when this happened, I was <laughs> I was kind of desperately looking for something. I'm like, I can't mm-hmm. be the only person that had this happen to them. Right. So I was looking, and that was the one that stuck out as me, as it ticked a lot of the boxes. It was very similar to what I what I saw. Things like that are very good at not fitting their exact description. Um, right. <laughs> right. Right. Has anything else strange happened? Where we always ask this now, either. It's often seems to be tied to the people that live there, a certain event or the land itself or a building or location. What do you think caused this thing to pop up and never come back again? I've looked into it, kind of trying to figure out what happened, where it would have happened, why it happened. And I honestly wish I had found something because they could try and stop it from happening again. Seeing large animals and seeing predators in their natural habitat and experiencing a close encounter like this isn't something that's foreign to me. 
it's not like somebody came out of New York City, went to a forest for the first time and saw a big animal and got spooked. I've grown up around stuff like this. I've seen bears, I've seen moose, I've seen elk, I've hunted, I've experienced all of this. And this was different. This wasn't what I had seen before. This wasn't anything I had seen before. And it was unique. Well, folks, that's going to wrap up part three of your true Halloween stories. We'd like to thank Mallory Kennington, Moises Velasquez, Clarette Johansson, Tim and his daughter Anna, and Mark for joining us tonight. We'd additionally like to say thanks again to our first six guests. Your stories were amazing. Thank you for sharing them. We're dark next week, aside from a junk drawer on Patreon at some point, but we'll be back the week after that with a new show. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. I wasn't wanting to use my real name on the show, so I'm going by J-Dub, but my actual name is D-B space J-U-R-N-E-Y. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.